zodiac signs that have one it's only those planets like the cancer is only moon and leo is only sun and then the only Correct. two signs that, the only two signs like that um, and i have them in opposite places which is really weird. oh interesting yeah no yeah. i like that dynamic uh of it being right after each other cancer moon leo sun so there's a lot to say about all of that for sure yeah, yeah i'm a uh oh, wow Okay, I gotta mute that. <laughs> um, I'm a Leo moon, and my wife is mm. a Cancer moon. So we get this really interesting luminary moon play going on. Nice. Yeah, I'm a Leo moon too. Are you? What house? Yep. You know, pff, I don't know. It's really funny. I mean, I spend so much time doing astrology, and uh, I've never actually like put a natal chart on my channel or anything like that. And I've studied my chart before, but obviously not very well. So I'm definitely more of an archetypal, you know, astrologer and looking okay. into the mythology and symbolism and stuff. So very I'm cool. not sure. Yeah. Oh, well, that stuff, that stuff is like endlessly complicated. I have. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny. I, I, I have this thing where like, I always read about it and like listen to people talk about it and it just sort of, about five percent of it sticks in my head yeah yeah just sort of like oh i know D during tarot readings and stuff and in comments and messages people tell me like very specific things about their chart and i'm like i don't really i can't say <laughs> i know what that means to be honest i'm like i could tell you a lot about each sign and each planet and things like that but uh as far as how it all kind of comes together that's definitely not my lane yeah, the the whole like I'm sextile with three kumquats and a and a and I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And my and my my natal uh my natal tempest is is opposite my. It's in chrysanthemum. Yeah, <laughs> my my natal tempest is in chrysanthemum right now. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a rub one. <laughs> um. Yeah. That's no. I, I I think that's interesting with astrology because uh when you say astrology people 
have whatever very one-dimensional kind of idea or representation that they've come in contact with once or twice in their head for the most part. So they're like, oh, astrology, you do this or you do that. Yes. And it's like, actually, no, I don't do the synthesis horary uh, nail charts. I am actually more into like the mythopoesis and the um, like Jungian stuff, which is yeah, awesome. That's right. Um, yeah. I think it's cool. No, there's, there's a whole wide so spectrum much, there. Yeah. <laughs> there's unbelievable amount of shit with astrology, which is why I can't remember any of it. <laughs> sure sure understandable i um uh i was just i was i was saving this for when we actually got online but uh so i i was rushing to meet our our meeting deadline here at, at, at 1 p.m my time so i ended up sacrilegiously fast forwarding through like the last 30 minutes of the shining <laughs> and i'm i'm 99 sure that every time you fast forward a kubrick movie it actually literally spins him in his grave <laughs> Probably, <laughs> yeah. that makes sense for sure he, he seems like a guy that would be deeply upset that that anyone has controls over how fast his movies go. i mean i felt like that when i paused it to go to the bathroom so <laughs> you felt kubrick in the room like what are you doing it was yeah, it was just like this disapproving dad stare. <laughs> That's really funny, man. <laughs> but you were you were saying that they all have a bathroom scene in them, almost all his movies, and you're it's right. It's like I I'm checking back over. Like that's crazy. Kurt They're is all... Kurt. Kurt's saying this right now from his bathroom. from a bathroom. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if it checks out that they all do but uh definitely full metal jacket obviously the shiny yeah. um you know and then i'm pretty sure also eyes wide shut and oh I yeah there's, other, there's bathroom humor at least in 2001 a space odyssey as well he's about to use the uh, space toilet <laughs> and he's reading the directions on how to use Direction. it <laughs> there must be i'm trying to remember if there's one in uh clockwork orange there has to be it's yeah. just the whole it's just the whole city that's the bathroom <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> uh so what what made you pick this one in particular the shining in particular yeah good question so i really got into kubrick you know i would say probably like 10 or 15 years ago and 2001 a space odyssey was like the kubrick movie for me personally um i went to film school I would say largely in part because of Stanley Kubrick. I didn't realize films could be that high quality. And so when I saw 2001, I was like, whoa, this was made in 1968. This is really crazy. And I just fell in love with it. And then I started digging through his stuff. And over the years, The Shining has kind of taken, I would say, the number one spot as far as my personal favorite Kubrick movie. Oh, and wow. just over the years, too, studying symbolism, I started picking up on all of these tiny little details because we would watch it probably. And I'm not really a guy that rewatches movies anyway, to be honest, but I would say we found ourselves watching it maybe once every two or three years. And so every time I would watch it as my symbolic awareness kind of grew, so did my kind of like perspective of the shining and just like how much of a masterclass it is symbolically and so i even read the shining i've never read any stephen king i've never had any desire to personally but i just wanted to know more about you know these characters backstories 
And actually, uh, in preparation for this, I watched The Shining again. And then I also watched Dr. Sleep, which is kind of like a sequel to The Shining. And I can't say I would recommend it personally, but it did give me a few <laughs> uh, new insights, you know, just on that world and probably what Stephen King was really trying to focus on. And, uh, you know, so anyway, so there's lots of little things that I've never heard mentioned about The Shining that I think Kubrick encoded within the project that I've been wanting to get off my chest. And so I figured this was just a really good opportunity to do that, you know? That's what we're here for. That's great. All right, <laughs> yes. now the podcast is over. It's great talking to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, what's like, well, that's really, uh, that's actually, that's really cool. Um, there's some things that, like, I honestly haven't seen this movie that much, but the, but I have seen it multiple times. And the things that stood out this time were definitely the sense of color. Mm. Like the color in the movie is like really vibrant and weird, especially all the, all the patterns that are on the floor. And like, and the shot that really got me was that one where Jack is leaning over the, the model, the hedge maze, and then it cuts to that bird's eye view of, of when kid in like tiny inside the inside the maze um and I, I feel like there's there's especially since the movie starts with this really distant shot of them driving on the on the road there's almost like that's the that's the evil presence or spirit of this place is like watching them that almost feels like the whole movie's from that point of view but I, um mm. uh that's mm. me i'm curious what 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 the what like some of the stuff is you've noticed that you haven't heard mentioned before um, yeah sure <clears throat> oh go yeah, ahead real, reverend real quick uh uh just my experience of watching it this time was uh so this is one of those films where i don't feel like i ever saw it for the first time it's just always existed yeah. <clears throat> like the yeah. shining has always been in my mind i cannot mm. remember the impact it ever had the first time because i genuinely don't know when that was but I think this was probably the only the third or fourth time I've ever seen it. And it, it's weird because I know I remembered every single detail about it just about like after the first or second watch. You know, it's just one of those, it, it got in there really deep. And, and it's one of those movies I don't really think about that often because it's kind of, it's perfect. It's perfect. So I almost feel like, I, I was kind of like, what are we even going to say about this? Um, how do you even talk about a movie that's just, no notes like it's it's done it's exactly what it needed to be and it it kind of puts every other haunted house movie to shame that's ever been made except maybe mm. the original house on haunted hill but that was a different kind of era and pushing different boundaries and things but um but what struck me the most this time was the sound design because in the past I've always been so absorbed by the visuals because like Kurt said like I mean every single shot in this movie is a masterpiece it's um and it does feel like you're seeing it as the swarm of ghosts um like you are the swarm of ghosts watching it all happen and, and being hungry and excited and kind of eager throughout um but what I noticed this time was even in the moments where everything's fine even in the beginning and I, and I never, like I said, never noticed it because the visuals are so striking and they're so absorbing that it kind of slips right under. But the sound stood out to me so much. And it's this cacophony of 
like rolling grumbles and symphonic like strains that feel like if someone were were being melancholic out loud um but it's like this intense melancholy that's that's like moaning and groaning and i never yeah. noticed it before and i just i just want to throw that out there that like because when you said it feels kind of like the the shots are all from the perspective of the <clears throat> mass of hungry ghosts it's the sound really plays into that and i just wanted to throw that out there because it i've been excited about it all day <laughs> basically nice. yeah i totally agree and that's actually what i picked up the most too i was telling my girlfriend i'm like wow i've never noticed how the sound design is so well done and how it adds to the whole atmosphere and how it's actually a very crucial part of the whole film and uh, I thought that was interesting, too, because that's what I noticed about 2001 as well. There's a few things that I had not noticed on a sound design level that I was really appreciating. So that's really cool that you pointed that out. Um, another thing for me regarding The Shining, I feel like I have a personal relationship with Kubrick. You know, I feel like I just I always have ever since I found out about his work. There has been random synchronicities with Kubrick and uh, I've created artwork for a magazine and it was a Kubrick um, issue. And so I've made artwork relating to his, you know, uh, films and um, the Overlook Hotel, the, the real Overlook Hotel is actually Timberline Lodge, which is on Mount Hood near Portland, Oregon. And so, oh. um, you know, there's a whole thing about Timberline Lodge and like its history, you know, but it's still there, you know, it's a ski resort. And so they only used one shot of it in the film, which is one exterior shot from like a helicopter. And then everything else was actually um, designed. It was like a soundstage sort of thing. They, they built it. Uh -huh. So this whole thing, I'm pretty sure was built in England. So, um, oh, wow. you know. I, I thought that the interior was actually the hotel. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable that they, that they built that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so all of that light is artificial light. You know, um, the way they designed the whole production was it was like the whole hotel existed and all of the light was artificial. So they could film daytime scenes in the middle of the night. Um, apparently, mm -hmm. you know, Kubrick was just a, a master at so many different things. But um, I guess no film had quite done what they did uh, with this project. So they could film in one room you know, in the morning and then another room in the evening. So they basically set it up so that they can film, you know, all of these various shots, various scenes, pretty much whenever they wanted to. And apparently things had never really been done that way. But yeah, it's one big soundstage in England. And so Kubrick, he was notorious. He did not like to travel. And so he lived in New York for a while and then he moved to England. And then once he moved there, uh, my understanding is that all films were essentially shot there. Even you know, eyes wide shut. It's New York. It's supposed to be New York City. That's all. That's all built. Well, you know, that's just a soundstage to look like New York. Yeah. Uh, so there's another famous director that has a similar thing. Uh, I, I forget what Kubrick's reason was, but um, oh, what is his name? Uh, he's he's a Scandinavian director. Oh God, I can't remember. They famously ruined Bjork from acting ever again. Like she hated the, the what was that fucking movie? Oh yeah. Dan Dancer in the Dark? Dancer in the Dark. So <laughs> I don't remember who made God, what it. Is his name? Uh, Lars von Trier. <laughs> Lars von Trier. He supposedly yeah. has a similar thing where he doesn't like to travel either. Like okay. he's afraid of 
flying. So he, there's a similar thing where like he won't leave his he won't leave his home country. But that's um, that's really fascinating that they I had no idea this was a whole an entirely constructed set, which that makes the significance of like all the crazy, weird pattern designs and the carpet and the color of stuff and like that that that's really fascinating because then that means there's even more deliberate choices in this yeah then yeah, yeah then oh then, sure yeah um so it was actually uh my understanding that his process what kubrick liked to do was he would send people out to um apparently he sent a whole team out to look at different hotel rooms and just take a bunch of photos. And so he had like hundreds of photos from these different hotel rooms from all over the country and probably all over the world would be my guess. And he literally, it was just a process of elimination where he was like, okay, this is perfect for this room. This is perfect for this hallway. And so he, his philosophy was why design something from scratch when like it's all already been done before. So let's just see what's out there and I'll just pick and choose what I think makes sense. And so some of these rooms actually, um, I, I think literally were designed off of actual hotel rooms that existed back in the day. <laughs> and well, you that, just said, well, okay, cool, let's do that. Well, that's, that's actually amazing because then it gives it this quality of like the hotel itself feels like it's like a place out of time. Yeah, it's a- because mm. like, it's a montage of different real hotels. Hell rooms. Yeah, <laughs> because like the the like the bat the bathroom scene with the old woman, the decayed woman, mm-hmm. that crazy weird like purple and green mm-hmm. room and bathroom. Like it's such a strange thing, and it feels like it's like a pop thing from like the '60s or something, maybe. And it's weird that it's in this hotel room and or in this hotel because it feels like kind of disjointed from in all the and it's also uh their lodging where they live where jack and wendy live that feels like a very different place in comparison to so and then that that's really cool so it's almost like the hotel itself is this sort of weird time portal like every era different world yeah that's like some kind of strange hyper sigil like it makes me think that all the rooms they copied are now haunted <laughs> like the actual yeah, yeah. hotels like the movie has fed back and bled into the real hotels <laughs> for sure uh so the other thing i was going to say about timberline lodge so we had friends coming into town to portland oregon where i used to live and i knew that they loved the shining and one of the guys was a tattoo artist and he had created designs and tattoos based off of the shining And so he was just like a super fan and he was really excited to go to Timberline Lodge just to see the place, right? And so we went, we had a really just interesting fun day. We decided to watch The Shining uh, that evening. It happened to be the 4th of July. And so as we're watching the movie, we hear fireworks and stuff going on in the background, like way in the distance. And then it just blew our minds at the very end, you know, that last photo of Jack. Uh, at that party it's a fourth of july ball and so there were like multiple synchronicities throughout that day but we literally were at the overlook hotel watched it we did not know about that photo being the fourth of july ball and then you know uh that's what it ended up being and so it was just this very synchronistic sort of moment so i feel like there were several things 
that have happened to me just over the years like that, that kind of solidifies it as like a personal favorite, you know? And every time I watch it too, it still kind of pulls me in. The way he designed everything, it really sucks you in. And I feel like, you know, your hand is being held through this experience. And um, I feel like there's kind of no let up. I don't think there's any fat in the movie. I don't think there's any scenes I would do away with or anything like that. And he was really good with constructing a very nice, concise picture, you know, where there's essentially like no scene, you know, needs to be on the cutting room floor or anything like that. So even this last time, as many times as I've seen it, I still got sucked in like I usually do. And so it's fascinating that he was able to do that, you know, to such great effect. Um, so anyway, so that's just kind of some other personal stuff. Um, one of the main things, though, that I think is really fascinating that really stuck out to me several years ago is the amount of door symbolism in this film. There are so many significant moments that revolve around a doorway or literally a door or a door opening. And so it makes sense that within the Overlook Hotel that there would be a lot of doors because you're you're indoors the whole entire time, right? But, um, you know, there's the uh, scene with the axe. He's chopping down a door. There's the uh, red rum, you know, being written on a door. There's the room 237, right? That involves a door. There's the elevator doors opening with the blood coming out. You know, Jack gets locked away um, in the storage room and he's talking directly at the door at one point to Wendy, who's on the other side. And so the amount of door symbolism in this film is really interesting. And I think that he's tapping into something. And I think he's alluding to a gateway, essentially, that, you know, the Overlook Hotel is a gateway. It's a bridge. It's a portal to like another realm, essentially. You know, it's kind of this bridge between, um, you know, the physical plane and the, you know, whatever sort of etheric plane, if you want to call it that. And so uh, these worlds kind of are bleeding through and the doorway, the door, the gate, you know, is like a perfect symbol to kind of allude to this. And so I think that this was very deliberate and even, you know, like the uh, Gemini twins symbolically, um, you know, Gemini, the, the symbol itself, it's like Roman numeral two. That's like a symbolic gateway. That's a symbolic doorway. And obviously we have uh, the two girls, the Grady twins, you know, in the film. And they weren't even part of the uh, original book. They were not necessarily twins. In fact, they were different ages in the book. And so Kubrick made some very calculated decisions that really added to the whole entire experience, like having um, the Grady daughters be twins. And then also the maze too. Uh, originally they were hedge animals. And so he turned it into a maze. Hmm. And so I think he kind of, um, he made some very strategic decisions that added to like the overall sort of like mythos or, um, whatever you want to say about the picture. So as an example, I think uh, Jack, to me, pretty clearly, he turns into the Minotaur, you know? So he turns into the Minotaur who guards mm -hmm. his labyrinth, who guards his maze, who essentially is looking to kill anything that gets, you know, within the maze, gets lost within the maze, but specifically children. That That's part of the mythology. So I think Kubrick, uh, you know, took Stephen King's work and really, I think he just improved upon it, you know, uh, for the sake of the audience. I'm really glad you brought up the um, the Minotaur thing. <clears throat> That's that was what I was thinking too, and I'd never I'd never clicked that until today, um, because you know he tells him you you've always been here, like 
you're meant to be the caretaker. And he dies in the maze, maze and, is, yeah. and is solidified there in that last photo. That last photo, by the way, <clears throat> I had a sync with that yesterday. Really? I thought, thought you might think this is interesting since you had one. Um, yeah, yesterday I was on Twitter and someone posted a picture of them sitting and doing like pointing up and pointing down and said like, like, haha. And I think they were just doing Baphomet. But then our friend Ren, who was on here a few episodes ago, uh, hosted the picture of Jack doing the thing at the end at the party, at the 4th of July party. Yeah. And it's the exact same Baphomet up and down. Totally. And that clicked with me too. Like, did Kubrick do that on purpose? Is there a as above, so below thing going on here? Or is it just, you know, but, but it was funny because I saw that photo and I'm like, well, that's Jack Nicholson, but I don't actually remember what this is from. And so then mm-hmm. when it popped up at the end of watching The Shining, I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> I saw this yesterday and had no idea what it was from. I was like, where, why, what? Yeah, that was fun. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I would love to know the history behind that photo specifically. You know, um, what his process was in choosing it how deliberate it was, um, you know, things like that, because I think it's a, a very curious, you know, picture that, that he included there. And obviously there, there has to be so many things encoded within it that we probably, or I probably have never considered or what have you, um, knowing how deliberate Kubrick was with absolutely anything and everything. Um, but, you know, it's really funny. So when I watched this movie, I would say probably two or three years ago, I was down a rabbit hole that was very significant for me. And I was surprised at how many things in the film kind of mirrored this rabbit hole. And sometimes when you're looking into something, so right now, because of my projects and bollock studies, you know, I'm looking into Leo symbolism. So I'm seeing it everywhere, you know, and that just tends to be the thing. It's once you're really focused on something, sometimes you can see everything through that lens. Tis the season too. Right. Yep, exactly. So um, I was looking into a lot of Taurus symbolism at the time, and I was looking into the constellation of Taurus, and specifically I was looking into uh, this star called um, Aldebaran. Some people call it Aldebaran. And this is the eye of the bull, okay? So there's two eyes that are in the constellation of Taurus. One of them is considered a royal star. So there's like four royal stars, Um in the Zodiac and one of them is Aldebaran and it's this huge, massive red star. You know, it's a really big, brilliant star and it sits opposite another star that's considered a Royal star. And this is uh, Antares. So this is within Scorpio. So Antares is considered the heart of the scorpion. And then Aldebaran is considered the eye of the bull. And so these two stars, uh, what I was looking into at the time was that, some cultures considered these two stars to be swords. And there's many myths and rumors and things like that out there about various constellations or stars being gateways or portals or what have you. And so I was looking into these two stars because they sit opposite of each other. Well, it turns out when you look towards Antares in Scorpio, you're looking towards the center of the galaxy. And when you're looking at Aldebaran, you're looking away from the center of the galaxy. So some people refer to Aldebaran as the gateway to hell, 
And there's a lot of symbolism that kind of backs that up. It was also considered very much like a, um, a star related to, you know, sometimes it was called like the eye of enlightenment or the eye of Buddha, things like that. And so this star has this huge, huge presence and there's a lot of myths surrounding it and they're all just very big and very grand. Okay. And so as I was researching all of this stuff, you know, one of the things I came across was that there are some people who think that the declaration of independence for the United States was actually signed as Aldebaran was rising over uh, the East. And so that the signing of the Declaration of Independence by Benjamin Franklin, who was part of the Hellfire Club, that uh, it was signed so that Aldebaran was rising over the Eastern horizon on July 4th, 1776, okay? And so this is the gateway to hell. This is symbolically the gateway to hell, Aldebaran. Some people consider it that because you're going away from the center of the galaxy. And then I was watching The Shining. <laughs> Which is what the American empire has been doing to the world for a while. <laughs> right? Moving away from the center of the galaxy <laughs> and sure. off into nowhere. Sure, totally. You know, And Benjamin Franklin, he was an occultist. A lot of these older guys were occultists and into all sorts all, of esoteric things. All of them, if you know their names, yeah. <laughs> Basically. Sure. Yeah, right. And so um, as I was watching this movie, I was like, wow, this is really fascinating because, you know, um, this gateway sometimes is compared or is sometimes given a direct location of being between Taurus and Gemini and Taurus and Gemini are right next to each other. So when I was watching the movie, I had all these different things in mind um, regarding this gateway to hell, Aldebaran, Taurus, the bull, things like that. And several people have pointed out over the years that it seems like Kubrick is foreshadowing this bull sort of concept before, you know, Jack turns into the Minotaur, which, by the way, Kubrick had a production company called Minotaur Productions. And so he's well aware of that mythology, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's thick. So um, when Danny is in the game room and he sees the twins for the first time, you know, they appear basically at the doorway of the game room you know and so there's that symbolic doorway again well there's a poster there's two posters that people think look like minotaurs i don't know if you guys have ever come across this there's one poster through the doorway behind the twins and it looks like a minotaur it looks like kind of the silhouette of this bull man thing with horns and then there's another poster on the wall and it looks like a minotaur as well it's supposed to be like a skiing poster but it looks like this minotaur. And I don't know about that one. I think that one is definitely, you know, up for interpretation. Um, and so there's those two bulls just perhaps in that room. And then also um, Wendy is talking to Danny in the kitchen and just behind her, there's a shelf. And when I noticed this, it just tripped me out, but there's literally a translucent bull right behind her. And then there's a salt and pepper shaker, a pair of shakers right next to the bowl that uh. look like twins. And so I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, is this Taurus? Is, is he alluding to Taurus and Gemini? And I'm like, is this, is he alluding to this gateway thing? And then I thought, you know, um, there are certain things in the film that make me think that he's alluding also to uh, just for effect that Wendy 
is um, a gateway of sorts as all women are because they actually like bring, you know, beings into this reality, you know? And so um, I started picking up all that stuff. And then when Jack actually turns into the Minotaur, you know, I'm like, well, I mean, to me, this just makes a lot of sense that he may be alluding to some of this stuff, you know, and that it's just very much, you know, veiled. So unless you're looking into this stuff specifically, you're definitely not going to pick it up. But when I was looking into it and I saw the film, I was like, there just seems to be like too many coincidences here, um, perhaps for this just to be a coincidence, you know, maybe there is something going on here. You know, was he researching that deeply into all of this stuff? I don't know, but there is an occult sort of like history with Aldebaran. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of rumors and conspiracies about the Nazis having like UFO technology and doing all this crazy stuff. Well, if you follow that thread and if you pull at it, uh, a lot of people say that they got this information um, through channeled sources that there was women who were channeling information. They're called the Vril Society and they were getting downloads from uh, entities from Aldebaran on how to create UFO technology. And so they believe that they were actually tapped into, you know, um, talking to somehow uh, distant relatives from Aldebaran and that they were giving them these schematics on how to create flying saucers and whatnot. So there's this whole entire thing there that just really, even right now, my mind is just kind of spinning with it of being like, I, I know I saw this stuff, but you know, am I completely stretching here or is so, there actually something to all of this? When it comes to that, uh, the Nazi stuff, I think exactly what they're talking to and exactly what they got is probably all up for debate. And like, there's probably hearsay stuck in there. For sure. But if you look at something more recent, like uh, Peter Lavenda's work on the nine, um, the people that that conjured or or that that were communing with and getting information from the Watchers, these nine uh, beings that are supposedly watching and running the planet from afar, um, all of those people either ended up working for Fortune 500. Uh, companies in Silicon Valley shaping the technology that we now have or they wrote for Star Trek which <laughs> shaped yeah. the technology we now have so <laughs> if you just look at like we know this one's true uh, so if you just go a little further back it doesn't seem that unlikely um, whether or not Kubrick knew of this I would say probably I mean if he's judging by what you just said there's no fucking way that he doesn't mean Aldebaran. Like, like the twins and the Eye of Taurus and the Eye of Taurus is in Gemini. So that's, I mean, that seems pretty open and shut to me. What it makes me do is then, and I'm sure you're already on this, but like, what else then? Like what else yeah. is in there? You know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. I just have to ask too, are you referring to Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces uh, yeah. series? Yeah. Okay, nice. I have that. I actually have not read it, but... Um... He is a very interesting researcher. <laughs> I'll just put it that yeah. way. There's a few <laughs> books that I've read of his recently that completely blew my mind. I've only read a little bit of his, um, and I haven't I haven't read all of that one, but I'm just very aware of his work because it comes up in a lot of other things that I've looked into. Um, it's really cool to me. I'm glad you told me that. Um, you said Aldebaran is the is the gate to hell. Yes. 
that makes so much sense. And because uh, I've always really liked that the four um, royal stars were associated with the four archangels for a long mm -hmm. time too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that all, that all came later, obviously, but, um, and I wanted to work it out in my own practice to where I would actually address those stars as the angels. But at some point, um, I feel like I got the message that like, no, that's erroneous. Like we're not actually those stars. Don't worry about it. But, mm. um, but uh, mythologically speaking, or mythically speaking, it's really cool because Michael had to cast the devil from heaven or cast the devil into hell and then then he was or out of heaven and that means he's basically kind of responsible for him then like the My michael is mm. satan's keeper after that event so michael being positioned guarding the gates to hell makes so much sense and i never put I that see. together nice nice yeah that is very interesting um just to riff off of that real quick so Taurus corresponds with the Hierophant card. And oftentimes the Hierophant has these two keys at his feet. So it'll be a silver key and a golden key. And so sometimes these gates are referred to as the golden gate and the silver gate. And so um, I made a couple of videos about this last year, but I think that's very interesting. And then also I'll say that, you know, when you're dealing with Taurus and bull symbolism, you know, um, the bull, I mean, there's so much to talk about with the bull, but, you know, there was, there were gods like Moloch or Baal, you know, where people would sacrifice their first fruit, their firstborn, you know, to a bull deity. That was a thing. And so, at least so they say, you know, when it comes to actual history and mythology, I'm so confused, guys. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's actually history. I don't know what's mythology. You know, I think a lot of what we've been told is history actually literally is mythology and vice versa. And then there's groups that try and turn mythology into history. And so there's just so many things that I'm just like still unpacking and wrapping my head around. But this is what is said, right? Is that there was bull deities, you would sacrifice your firstborn. Sometimes the bull had like seven compartments. Um, you know, there's even like the brazen bull, the Greek brazen bull, you know, you put people in this bull and light it on fire underneath and then the person just suffers within this bull. So there's a whole thing with um, cattle symbolism and sacrifice. That's definitely a thing, but also the bull itself and sacrifice. And even like the Mithraics, you know, they would sacrifice a bull and bathe in its blood. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of blood, or at least in a couple of scenes, there's a lot of blood, you know, in this movie, which to me, that just screams gateway to hell symbolism, you know, the, the elevator opening and this blood just kind of gushing out, right? Um, and so when you're dealing with Baal, a lot of people have made kind of the conclusion that, uh, you know, there's a lot of words, I, I've started getting more into etymology and, and, and things of that sort lately, and just like the relationship between words. So there is a correspondence between like bail, ball, bowl, and bell, you know, these words are very much related. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see this red bell, you know, in several scenes, especially when the twins show up. And so I see this red bell and it's supposed mm -hmm. to be just like a fire alarm or something like that. But, you know, uh, no stone is left unturned with Kubrick. So I think everything is very much deliberate. And so when I see this red bell, you know, in the hallway throughout the film, it just makes me wonder, is this a bail reference actually, you know? Um, so just something to think about, I think. And I think that that's kind of more than anything 
I have my suspicions and I have like kind of my, um, the way I speculate about what I think is going on here. But more than anything, I feel like I just have all of these little sort of things that I've noticed throughout the years and I'm just going to put them out there and maybe they might resonate with people or perhaps not, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, but that is something that I can't not notice now is this red bell. And it makes me wonder if it's Bale. And then um, if it is a reference to Bale, then obviously Jack, like I said, he turns into the Minotaur. So he turns in, turns into this bull-like figure that is going after Danny, um, you know, within this maze, which is where obviously he dies and everything. So just something to throw out there uh, as well. Now this is uh, This is interesting because it brings something up to me. We did um, Firewalk with me a few week, couple weeks back. Okay. And we're, we're talking about how you see something in a David Lynch film and you're like, you know for sure that it was 100% intentional, but that doesn't mean that you or even he knows what it is. Sure. Necessarily. Yeah. With Kubrick, that's not true, right? I feel like with Kubrick, he knows exactly what every single thing means. And it is this masterwork crafted, like controlled thing rather than a conversation with spirit and just like surfing and kind of exploring what it is. There's a, there's a big difference in approach there. And I think that's important to kind of recognize that most of the time I prefer the exploration aspect because most of the time it doesn't turn out as well as the shining when you're trying to control it all. Most of the time, right. people aren't Stanley Kubrick. Correct, correct. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, well, uh, um, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Please. Go ahead. Okay. I mean, it was just, it was uh, another thing that I've noticed. Uh, so if it's more related to this topic, you should feel free. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, right on. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, one of the other things that I really noticed and appreciated it's so subtle, but when I picked it up, I was blown away. I was just like, this is just so good. So obviously Danny has the shining. So he, he can, he has these visions. He's in touch with something. And the first person to talk to him about this shine is Holleran, right? The, the cook or chef. And so he is the first person to talk to him about it. And cause he knows, cause he has the shine as well. And so um, that's how they're able to communicate, right? And that's why he comes back towards the end of the film and everything else. But I just love the scene when they're in the kitchen. And so uh, the family comes to the Overlook Hotel for the first time. Um, Jack and Wendy have to take a tour of somewhere uh, of the boiler room or something like that. And then Holleran asks if it's okay to give Danny some ice cream. And they say, sure. So they have this moment together. And I just love the fact that Danny is eating chocolate ice cream out of this silver bowl, you know, and I just think it's this and the whole uh, kitchen largely is like this stainless steel sort of uh, thing. It's, it's very silvery. Right. And so when I think of silver, you know, I think of lunar symbolism. I think of the moon. Um, I think of silver itself. Right. And the qualities of silver. And I do think about this kind of like psychic sort of thing. I think you can make the comparison or relationship between like psychic phenomenon and even and water, you know, and um, how water, you know, um, it, you know, it takes the shape of any vessel, you know, um, we use it to travel, 
you know, we're mostly water, you know, things like that. And so I think that you can make the case that psychic phenomenon is very much kind of like a watery, I think elementally, you could also say there's a lot of air symbolism in, in that as well, and kind of transferring best, and communicating. Go ahead. I, I think like the best uh, way to describe that for me for, with water is whatever you put in water, the whole body of water takes on the qualities of that thing. So there there's you go. like this easy element of, of um, channeling or, or something. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Right. Yep. And so they're having this conversation about shining and, you know, getting these downloads from the ether and he's eating from this uh, silver bowl, you know, and again, it's chocolate ice cream. I don't think it's a mistake that Holleran is a black man and he's having chocolate ice cream. So it's almost kind of like symbolically he's taking in his gnosis or he's taking in his knowledge, his wisdom, his insights. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about this psychic sort of thing. And so I just think that the bowl is like a perfect representation of that, of uh, Danny also being this vessel of sorts and basically receiving this information, both from Holleran himself, but also from the Overlook and also from the ether with his gift of, of the shine. And so I think that that was all very deliberate too. You know, and so when I see that scene, it's very, but it, it's another masterclass sort of example of how to, you know, speak to what they're actually talking about, you know, in a visual way. I think the metaphor is just absolutely brilliant. I think that's even more subtle nowadays because we're trained to think we're racist if we notice something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, he's this color. The thing that he is eating is this color. That is a visual connection, period. And they're doing it in a very shiny locale out of a shiny <laughs> <Yeah>. object. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. The, the only right. two things like, yeah, yeah, there's all of the rest is watery. And then there's these things that are connected. And that's very astute. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I like that. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Comparing Kubrick and uh, David Lynch, because actually for a long time, Kubrick's favorite movie was Eraserhead. Oh yeah, yeah. He 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 would show it to people. He'd be like, "Fucking look at this! I've never I've never seen." And they have there are they are basically opposite, um, opposite approaches, and. The thing is, is like, I know Kubrick was a pretty much uh, a materialist atheist. He claimed to be that. Mm -hmm. And um, and that kind of, kind of like leads into the, the whole very controlling, like meticulous, like design everything. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't connecting with something larger than himself. He just wasn't, he probably just wasn't thinking of it that way. He was, he was, and he was such a like titanic talent that it was hard for him not to think of everything as his own. So there's, I think there's, I think mm. they're very, they're, they are similar. Like they're getting, they're channeling something, both of them, but that just that Lynch is like an open airway. And then like mm. uh, Kubrick's almost like a closed mechanical box. That's like, a great point. Yeah, like he's just, he's, he's getting all this stuff, he's receiving it, 
but it he would not see it as being outside of himself. He would see right. it as totally self-generated. There's there's um, this ego block between like like if you if you want to take credit for the whole thing, you're going to believe it's all you. Yeah. I mm. think that's the ticket. If if you're and willing not, to recognize there are forces bigger than you <laughs> and, and, and you're just a leaf on the wind, then it's then you're David Lynch. Like Yeah, and it's and it's not wrong, but it's not 100% correct either, right? Right. Um Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that yeah. makes I a mean, lot of sense. Like Kurt Vonnegut was a fucking avid atheist. I mean, try reading one of his books and tell me it's not spiritual in some way. Like I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's, it's also interesting because because uh, famously Stephen King and Kubrick were at odds about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> because... Stephen King has the worst taste in fucking movies. <laughs> He likes all of his worst movies. He thinks that the worst adaptations are the best. Like, and he he would go to bat about it too. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, and and it's funny because they're also very opposite. Like, I think Stephen King is much more. He's closer to Lynch. He's not the same thing, but he's closer. He's he's more of an open channel in a sense. Yeah. And he, you know, he's a bit of a believer. Uh, and Kubrick is not at all. Kubrick, I, I think Kubrick was like, no, ghosts are absurd. That's stupid. They don't exist. Basically, something. <laughs> and meanwhile, David Stephen Lynch. Dane, David Lynch is like not believing in angels is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just funny because even though they have very different approaches, much like you were saying, Mario, like Kubrick made this so much of a better story. Yeah, and mm. get and like the things he's adding. It's it's almost like he he took he took the raw a bit of the raw material of the of King's story and then refined it even further and made it even more coherent and important. There's another there's another uh, thing I was I was realizing about this is another way to look at look at this movie, which is that it is about being a creative genius and the complete inconvenience it is to have any sort of connection to family or humanity and yeah. they just drive you crazy like yeah, I, I really it's fucked really, up because like the first half of the movie i'm just like bro i feel you dog <laughs> oh, oh yeah the, the contempt he has for her at the very beginning is like i never noticed it before but i'm like oh my god he does not like her at all no no right that, no. that, that actually brings oh because okay the brilliance of 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 jack in this is it's like hard to even talk about to me because he manages to portray someone who has been a fabricated character version of themselves their whole lives and and what that actually looks like as it starts to degrade and they have to like become the real them like like there's pop culture references flying out of him like Here's Johnny from the Carson show and fucking like all way at work and no play. Like it's it's these little bits of culture and of the world that he's cobbled together to make the him that he presents. And when he starts losing his grip, it's like they all just start swarming in and out. Like, and there's not really like a fully constructed person in there. Um, mm -hmm. I found that to be really profound this watch through. Um, it felt like watching someone have 
the worst trip of their life and just total ego debt like they're mm-hmm. scrambling to like exist still um even though everything they thought they were is just like suddenly fluid yeah there, right. there's his acting choices are yeah it's so odd because you're right it's it is like this really I, I just want to say fake like it's real mannered but it's it's like going haywire yeah and like all it's, it's like it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a host robot we're short-circuiting yeah and and there's i love like all these like reptilian tongue flicks that he like throws mm, yeah. into like these like there's like little ones like there's there's one at the beginning right when he goes into the the at the bar for the first time and his like hands are over his eyes and you see his tongue like flick out really really briefly yeah. And then that just gets, that just like escalates as the movie goes on. Yeah, no, exactly right. Yeah, great points. Um, you brought up the all work and no play. And, you know, this this bull sort of weave, this uh, minotaur weave, um, I think is, is deliberate to some degree, you know. And um, one of the other examples, there's so many examples, but one of them that comes to mind is, you know, um, when you look at the pages that he wrote all work and no play all those pages i slowed down that scene and i looked at every single page just to see (laughs) how it was laid out and like see if i could decode anything or what have you and apparently kubrick actually wrote those pages himself that was like a little project and uh his daughter made a little documentary about the shining it's very short it's like five or 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something it's not very long but she did a lot of the behind the scenes um sort of uh stuff she she just documented behind the scenes um things that were kind of going on with the crew and everything and actually his daughter appears in 2001 a space odyssey that's who uh, the guy when he's talking to his daughter on his way to the moon um, that that is kubrick's daughter and so anyway, so I think that's where I got that from was that Kubrick was literally at the typewriter and writing all work and no play, all work and no play. He did all of his different pages himself. And when you slow it down, look at every single page, you know, the formatting is different and things like that. But there's only one example of there being like an extra letter outside of the main body of text. And it's the letter V. On the left-hand side, in the left margin, you're going to see this letter V. And I think that's very, very interesting because when you look at the Taurus constellation, the main prominent feature of Taurus is this gigantic V. And that's where you're actually going to see the two eyes of the bull, Aldebaran and then Ain is is the other eye. And so once again, Taurus corresponds with the Hierophant card, which is Roman numeral five. It's the fifth card, it's V. And Taurus is also ruled by Venus. And then I was saying that the Vril Society, there's the V again, you know, is in touch with these beings from Aldebaran. So there's a whole weave that I've gotten into in other videos uh, about the V and how it relates to uh, Taurus, essentially. And so I just thought that was kind of interesting. Of all the letters, you know, it's a V. And then also, too, in the book, Jack did not have an axe. He had a uh, croquet mallet. And so uh, (laughs) that changes things, you know, quite a bit. And so that's not very much in line with the Minotaur, but the axe is, obviously. And like what I was saying before, there wasn't a maze. There were hedge animals. 
And so yeah. he changed it from hedge animals to a maze and he changed it from a croquet mallet to, to an ax, you know? There's no doubt that that's a deliberate reference there. Like that's, that's a lot of work to, to make it fit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. There's even, um, there was a mini series that I think Stephen King was closely a part of and they still retain the mallet and they still retain the uh, hedge animals. <laughs> Uh, but that series is is not good at all. <laughs> well, I'm sure <laughs> so, Stephen King no likes surprise. it. He probably sure loves it. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> like nothing will ever beat Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> it actually feels like uh, I mean, I don't know. I I love I actually love Stephen King. I don't read. A, I've never read a lot of his books. Well, mm -hmm. I've read all of the the Dark Tower series, and. A couple others eyes of the dragon i really love that one that one was really good but he's not the best writer in the world he's just really willing to let ideas come through him like so willing to that he doesn't give a fuck if he writes the same book a second time and calls it something else like i i love that about him and i also think it's really cool that he just is like a willing conduit for these raw ideas and they come mm -hmm. out and they're always weird. They're always in a way that I don't expect. Like he'll build up to the thing, but then the thing will just walk around the corner and like talk to you. Like instead of being like scary and in the shadows for the rest of the movie or the rest of the story, it becomes its own character with its own com complex, you know, existence. And I find that he goes deeper with sort of metaphysical stuff than, than a lot of people do. And I think a lot of that's because he's getting it from his fucking dreams, which he said a bunch uh. of times that like, most of the time he gets up, he writes down something vague and then he kind of works out some details later and that's a fucking book, done. <clears throat> and, um, but I think it's cool. I think cosmically speaking, he's someone that pumps out, like births the ideas into the world and they might not be in their final form yet. They might actually, mm. like some of these ideas are still gestating and they're waiting for the right filmmaker to adapt them or the right, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so many people, uh, I mean, so much of our entertainment, so much of the great stuff that's out there, you know, is channeled. So uh, whether it be through uh, dreams or literally having some sort of practice or what have you, but that definitely seems to be a thing. So that's fascinating. Well, so <clears throat> that also, that's also interesting because like, I think one of the other most successful Stephen King no, actually, there's there's several. One of my all-time favorite movies is actually Stand By Me, which was the Stephen oh, yeah. King short story. But it's, mm -hmm. it's an incredible movie. The book is, I mean, the story I remember being pretty good, but the movie is, like, excellent. And it's similar with, um, what was the Frank Darabont one that was just The Fog or what, what was it called? The Mist. The Mist. I think it was The Mist, which was also a Stephen King story that Frank Darabont took and, like, elevated even more than what it was. Mm. Uh, with its really twisted, fucked up ending. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that like he's not the final form. He's just the he's just the the guy that's like the initial he's, minor. He's a that, midwife. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a story midwife. Yeah. Well, okay. So to that point, one of my favorite things about the Dark Tower series was that um, it's his it's his it's Stephen King's like life work. Uh, he started, he wrote the Dark Tower, the, the Gunslinger, the first book in the series when he was 19 years old. And he finished the seventh book in the series in like 2004 or six. So wow. it spanned like 
upwards of 40 years, him writing seven, these seven books. And <clears throat> the Dark Tower series, every single other story that Stephen King writes is in that universe. Mm, All of okay. them are in that universe. Like, um, I'm trying to think of the names of them, but there are just so many that have the, even the same characters that are in hiding and they're under a different name, but you don't know that unless you read Dark Tower. Mm. Um, so it is it is his it's his thesis for his fictional universe, but in his mind, it's just the world. Like that is literally what he sees. And in the Dark Tower series, he wrote himself into the story. Mm. And the characters actually have to show up at his house and save his life because if he stops writing the story, they don't exist anymore and they can't <laughs> save all of existence. And, mm. but he, he talks about the, the turtle, the, the cosmic turtle Gan and how the oh. navel, the navel of the cosmic turtle is, is birthing stories. And if the writers don't Whoa. write this, if the writers don't keep writing, everything stops. Whoa, mm. I love that. Yeah, that you should read the amazing. Dark Tower. You should read the Dark Tower series. It's it's definitely worth it. It's seven books. It changes a lot because he wrote it at different varying times, but it's an adventure. And um it's really cool too because you'll come away with that going like, Oh fuck, I understand all these other stories so much better. Um, I'm forgetting what the what it's called. Hearts in Atlantis. Do you remember Hearts in Atlantis with Anthony Hopkins? I never saw it, but I know what you're talking about. That's one of my favorite of the spinoff, like that's connected very deeply. Like the main character is in the Dark Tower series and he's someone who's held captive as a psychic who's like trying to break one of the pillars that holds the world together. Like he's a prisoner who's having to like destroy something that holds the world together with his psychic powers. And he gets away and you just never hear from him again. But then Hearts in Atlantis, you're like, you, you, you put the piece, they put enough in there that you click like, this is where that character went and lived the rest of his life. It's so fun. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'm interested, man. I mean, honestly, um, the, the turtle symbolism, that's fascinating. The navel. Um, I'm really interested in Northern symbolism. And I've talked about it a little bit on my channel, but like things related to the North Star, Ursa Major and Minor, um, what some people refer to as the Axis Mundi, you know, the Poles, um, things like that. And so um, naval and turtle symbolism very much is, is a part of that sort of uh, lineage of, of symbols. And so that's very powerful, the fact that he linked all that together and the story mm -hmm. thing too, that, that's really fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. I might I have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, a few of the other things that I've noticed uh, in The Shining, just really small details that I think they add up though. I, Kubrick was a subliminal um, um, sort of guy. Like he, he had an awareness of subliminal symbolism and how the subconscious worked. And so um, he was also, I would say in a lot of ways, he was a propagandist, you know? So I think that he was on the inside track and was probably commissioned to create certain films for certain reasons. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of Hollywood directors, although he wasn't located in Hollywood, obviously he was part of that system, you know, in many ways. Um, and so sometimes kind of what I think with certain directors is they're almost hired to create a project 
And then this will give them leverage, leverage to create personal projects down the road. And then every once in a while they're tapped to create sort of a film uh, for the masses that is going to be used for a specific purpose. And I think Kubrick, he was too good to not be that kind of person anyway. You know, and so I think that um, in a lot of ways, he probably created and directed stuff that we're unaware of. I like would the say. moon landing. Perhaps, indeed, yes. And so is that your line of thinking? Just curious. I, my line of thinking is the only things that I know for sure are real are things that I am directly in relation to. There you go, man. So could we have gone to the moon back then? Maybe. Um, does it make more sense that we needed to beat the Russians at any cost, even if it meant faking it. Yes, that that seems the simpler solution to me. Yeah, no, I, that's my opinion too. I mean, I, I basically I don't I don't think we we win. Otherwise, no. Otherwise, we'd be, you know, we'd have strip mined the moon by now if we could go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And so it does make sense. And so some people do think that he was kind of exposing. You know, that, that The Shining was a metaphor for him to kind of outline some of that. So Danny obviously is wearing the Apollo 11 shirt at one point or a sweater. Have you guys seen Room 237 by chance? Is that something you guys have checked out? I did, I but I was still a drug addict, so I don't remember it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> it didn't resonate with me as much as I was hoping, you know. Um, and so I think they're, they are kind of reaching, you know, in certain ways. And so people think that it was a metaphor for Kubrick to kind of expose the fact that he was Jack and that his strained relationship with Wendy was actually his strained relationship with his wife while he was working on the moon landing. And for people who are unaware, the, the, the big theory is that Kubrick was hired to film the moon landing in tandem with creating 2001 a space odyssey so it would make perfect sense that they would have these different sets you know built of you know different planets or space or whatever you know and that he um, basically was working on those two projects together 2001 a space odyssey came out in 1968 a year before we supposedly went to the moon and so i think that in a lot of ways it was priming the pump for people to accept that information a year later you know and so um i think that all of that stuff completely lines up and adds up uh, in my it, opinion as well i think it also provides a really uh airtight cover for why they had a set set up to look like they were in space Mm -hmm. because pictures come out and they're like well it was obviously for 2001 you fucking conspiracy <laughs> idiot <laughs> <laughs> right 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 yeah no it, it's it's the perfect cover you know in a lot of different ways and so you and know, i almost so feel like caliber... like 2001 kind of i think maybe had a message directly relating to humans and tools and the tool of media becoming yeah I think that there might have been embedded in there the story behind why it was made. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think so too. And so even some people, um, I'm not sure if you've checked out Jay Widener's work on Kubrick or 2001, but he's kind of gone all in on some of this material if people are interested in learning more. So his name's Jay Widener. He has several documentaries about Kubrick and, and the moon landing in 2001. But I know that one of the things he puts out there and I've heard speculated before is that, you know, to your point about the tool and media, the monolith almost looks like it's the same aspect ratio of a screen, 
you know, and I think that uh, one of the original designs for the monolith was that they wanted to actually project imagery onto the monolith and that it was actually going to be, you know, moving colors and patterns and stuff, maybe kind of like the hyperspace sequence or whatever. But uh, I think that was too technologically advanced for what they could pull off. So instead, it was just this black monolith. Um, but what I was going to say is that, you know, this is the caliber that Kubrick was. He, he was working with these different agencies or organizations or whatever to pull this off. So every single tiny little detail, you know, I think he was completely well aware of. And advertisers and stuff back then were well aware of this stuff, too. I read a book about subliminal advertising. And the things that these companies and these psychologists and agencies pulled off were incredible. You would just never think of some of this stuff. And this and so, is when? Um, you know, when it really took off, that's a really great question. I would say definitely the 60s and 70s, you know. So, you, uh, so you're saying the, the, the advertising, like, psychological stuff was mind-blowing in the 60s and 70s? Yes. Yeah. I, would, so I, just, I, I, I think so, yeah. So just imagine now. That's all. Sorry. One hundred percent. It's so much more high tech now, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and so they're doing things that would blow people's minds, obviously. Um, but you know, some of these techniques that even these cigarette companies and stuff, like they had this uh, concept called the hell cell, and um, the idea was that if they subliminally put in like skulls and spiders and like death imagery that this was speaking to your subconscious and that you would think that that would actually detract you from buying, you know, this uh, brand of liquor because there's a subliminal skull in the ice or something like that, but it actually does the exact opposite. So it speaks to a different part of us that actually wants us to consume that product or what have you. So what I've always heard too, kind of similarly, but you know, the surgeon general's warning, right. Mm -hmm. On like cigarette packets and stuff that increased sales. So yeah. when they put a warning on something, it actually does the opposite effect, which is why I think they actually do it. We just mentioned that a couple episodes ago about parental advisory stickers. How when you were a kid, it was like you just shuffle through to find like this is this is the sticker that means this is probably pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. I, I don't and, think that ever really leaves you. You just convince yourself that you've grown out of it. But it, then it just moves to the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, it also doesn't help that usually the people advocating for that stuff are usually the lamest namby pambies possible, <laughs> the biggest wet blankets. It's always, it's never someone like you can kind of respect or think is cool that says, yeah, let's do the warning. That's never. <laughs> it's like if Iggy Pop told me to stop smoking yeah, cigarettes, exactly. like maybe I would, you know, but instead uh, it's some fucking Christian wearing cargo shorts. It's someone right. dressed like Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> so like in this book uh in this book what i saw one of the things that i picked up was you know there's some technique there's two techniques i'll bring up real quick one of them was not showing people's feet and so this book was saying that advertisers came across this sort of technique where they don't show people's feet and somehow that speaks to our subconscious for whatever reason, you know, but there's no like soul there, right? Or there's no foundation or something. Mm. And so it could be part of the hell cell sort of thing. Um, but I started looking through these old magazines and sure as shit, I saw a bunch of different old cigarette ads from this one brand in particular. All of the people, they're all always outside enjoying a sunset or they're posing, you know, because they just went on a hike or a walk or something like that. 
And I was really surprised to see that all of their feet were covered up. They were covered up by like weeds or like bushes or like a log or something like that. And so that kind of backed up what this book was saying. And then this book was also saying too, that uh, they developed this technique where in a magazine, you would turn the page and they would design both sides of the page with each other with that little bit of light that bleeds through the page. And ah. so you're looking at one page, the light bleeds through as you're turning it and you're actually getting a subliminal uh, image because you're blending the two images together. So, Man, you know, that I always wondered about that shit when I was like 14 looking at a game pro. <laughs> like, I don't know why I always like, like looking at video game magazines when I was little, I was like, they did that on purpose. That dot is right on her boob. As, um, <laughs> as someone who's, who's studied art and classical painting and uh, I can kind of speak to the, the, the cutting off the feet thing, because there's a, if you look at old paintings, they tend to be staged where it's whole full figures. Like you see the complete person. Um, and there was, there's some people that have talked about that being almost like it's a respect for the work of, of the creator. Like you're not going to chop up his creation, but there's another, other aspect to it too, is like, if you see the entirety of a person, they're a complete separate entity from you. Right. Whereas something that's obscured, you have to complete the image yourself. So in other words, there's a small part of you that has to be involved in the creation of that person so in a sense i could see that you're you slightly have to pour yourself into that a bit oh interesting that yeah. is a, that's a fascinating take i think uh i think that makes a lot of sense actually so you're gonna get and you know what actually that speaks perfectly to some of the other techniques i saw and so there was one cigarette company that always involved, like their campaign for years was involving multiple people. It was almost like a small party. It was like three or four people, but they're at the beach and they're all kind of over each other, like hugging each other and they're all smoking cigarettes or whatever, or one person would be, or they're skiing, you know, and they're taking a group shot or what have you. And one of the things that I noticed, and maybe I should do a video about this sometime, but one of the things that I noticed is that these scenes and the posture and uh, just everything of these people, they were like impossible essentially. So like one person's arm would be over like two or three people. And then you see their hand poking out the side and it's like, that's impossible. His arm is not that long or there'll be like a random like foot that doesn't belong there. Or you'll notice that someone has one foot and there's like no, there's no other leg. You know, so you would never, ever know that there's anything off unless you're looking for it. But then once you start looking for it, you start noticing all of these really strange, bizarre kind of anomalies. And they wouldn't be doing this for no reason. You know, there, there's something that's going on there that's speaking to us. And so I think kind of in a way, when something is artificial, in a way, I think that actually it appeals to us a lot more. And maybe the trends are changing and people are changing and our psychology is changing or whatever. But, you know, um, there's something about either the thing missing or something being artificial that draws us in, essentially, you know, uh, versus if it were like a natural real photo, it just wouldn't be as effective. And so I think if you just tweak it slightly, 
and you kind of make this impossible pose or this impossible situation possible, even if you're not noticing it, your subconscious somehow is noticing it. But it just kind of reminded me of some of what you just said there. I like that, uh, what you're saying, that it draws you in because you're trying to complete it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really insidious to think. Like, it's some really dark magic to think someone's inciting you into becoming part of an image to like entangling yourself with it and then identifying with it as just another aspect of self right Mm. that's that's probably how that ends up processing subconsciously yeah or like when they're uh when the family's driving to the overlook for the first time you know danny brings up cannibalism or uh, the donner party wendy brings it up and then they start talking about cannibalism and he said i saw that on tv you know and uh, Wendy is actually, she has a flower like pinned to her sweater or jacket and the flower is dead. It's really fascinating to look at it that way, mm. but you could tell it was like a dried dead flower, you know? And I just think that there's lots of little things like that throughout the whole mm. entire picture that you're just subliminally picking up on. You could potentially notice it. Or even uh, when Jack is going to the Overlook Hotel for the first time, you know, they start off that shot where, you know, they're over the river or whatever and over um, the road and they're going towards the mountain. And one of the vehicles that you actually see on the road is a hearse, you know? Uh So I think that was probably intentional. You know, I I think Kubrick was was all about that kind of stuff. Was that the one that was pulled off on the side? There's two, there's, there's two or three cars that you see on the way. And one of them, I believe so, actually, I believe that they were pulled off to the side. Yeah. Yeah. Right before the tunnel, maybe. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That that those opening shots are crazy because they look like modern drone footage, but this was done mm. in the 1980s, probably with like a helicopter or something. Yeah. And the the quality of those shots, the control of, the, of them is really insane because yeah. it, get, oh, yeah. it 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 flies really in and gets super close. To the car and then veers off and the fact that at no point does the shadow from whatever is shooting that merges into the frame that's, that's also a pretty impressive well, little feat um, that's just yeah. what happens when you have like a budget that includes nazi ufos <laughs> <laughs> or you just hand it to an actual ghost and it's just a ghost <laughs> yeah 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 right <laughs> the cheap cheap pay and just, just like <laughs> spill a little whiskey. I don't even have to give him money. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's impressive too. And it gets me every single time and the music and everything else. Um, but what I relate that to now is one of the things I've been looking into symbolically a lot more lately, because I just think it, it really, it's significant is um, psychopomp symbolism, you know? So uh, a lot of cultures have this idea, this deity, or this role or this figure, whatever, that is the guide of souls. And so they travel between realms. A lot of times shamans identify as being a psychopomp themselves, you know, or that they work with the psychopomp. And so uh, Mercury, Hermes, Thoth, you know, uh, I kind of look at all these figures as being pretty much for the most part, very similar or the same. And they were considered the psychopomp. So they would be the guide of souls. And so the main feature of the psychopomp is going between realms. So going between, um, you know, the above and the below from the, the physical material world to the etheric plane or the afterlife, right? Or the underworld, 
even, you know? And so that's why a lot of psychopomp characters, that's why uh, figures like uh, Hermes or Mercury, they're travelers. They're the messenger of the gods. So they go between the realms, you know? And so what I'm realizing is that there's like a whole sort of branch of like symbolism that is psychopomp symbolism. So the horse has been associated with these psychopomps because they're very much a traveling animal and we use them. They were like the preeminent way of traveling for a very long time. Uh, the boat is also a psychopomp symbolism. You know, it's like the journey to the afterlife. Um, the chariot also kind of falls in line with this. And I would say the car as well would be like a modern version of this. So the fact that we're just seeing the car travel and that we're traveling to the Overlook Hotel, to me, the vibe that I kind of get is the travel like travel symbolism when you look at it and on a grand grand scale you know the ultimate trip is to go to the afterlife the ultimate trip would be to transcend and go beyond this realm or beyond this plane and that's kind of what we're dealing with with the film anyway you know is where there's this bleed through between realities you know and so i think there's a lot of things like that that are kind of going on um so even danny has his little tricycle right so he's kind of riding around you know, the Overlook Hotel. And I'm starting to see that a lot of main characters in films are actually very mercurial. And Mercury symbolism is very deep. There, He's so, I kind of see him all over the place. And in a lot of ways, I think he might be um, a metaphor for ether, kind of the thing that exists everywhere that holds everything together. Um, and so that's kind of a whole separate conversation and rabbit hole or what have you. But I think that when you look at Danny, I think that he's very much a mercurial type figure. And so Mercury is definitely usually associated with youth, you know? And so if you're looking at the seven traditional planetary system, Mercury would be kind of like the furthest closest in its uh, rotation is 88 days. So it goes through a whole cycle or revolution really quickly Saturn takes like 27 years. So they're kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. And so um, as an example, there's like these old alchemical drawings and they show um, Saturn with his scythe chopping off the legs of Mercury. And so it's almost symbolic that like the old gods always prey on the youth, you know, or that the older mm -hmm. generation always preys on the youth mm -hmm. and symbolically eats their children, just like Saturn is known for doing. And so um, as I see this picture, again, I'm kind of reminded that Danny is very much a Mercury type character. Mm. It, in, what that makes me think about, too, is that uh, this is like one of, I don't know if it's one of the, it's definitely one of the earliest movies that used a steady cam. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which its unique quality is that like before they would have to like either put it on rails, the camera would have to be put on rails or it would be stuck on a tripod of some sort or a crane. Whereas the Steadicam allowed you to just walk around anywhere. So there's this, this freedom to just go and move. And that I think also mm -hmm. kind of, that ties into the mercurial thing that you're, you're speaking of. It's like the, the camera isn't fixed. It's fluid and dynamic and can change. And so that's where you get these shots where you can actually travel and follow the follow Danny as he rides around through all these different spaces. And the and only there's... way that you were able to feel like a ghost, like that's the only way you yeah. can achieve that. Mm. Like you, you might be one of the spirits watching them, you know? Yeah. In fact, I think, I think that's what is mostly applied to this. I think that, yeah. that if this, ha if this movie were to have a specific, 
viewer as a point of view, I think it would be as the spirits of the overlook itself. Yeah. Right. Excellent point, man. I think you're totally spot on with that for sure. And it also, it kind of just reminds me too, that, you know, a lot of people say how the whole framework of death and the afterlife um, works, you know, I'm not sure I have my own hunches. Absolutely. And that's something that I'm really interested in right now. But, you know, a lot of people have said that spirits who are still here, who are still haunting, if you will, you know, they're unsettled. And so they weren't able to make that transition smoothly because they're somehow still corded to this plane of reality. So they're still things that they, you know, either people that they want to see or things that they want to do or what have you, you know? So I think of these spirits as being unsettled for whatever reason, because if they, um, you know, if things were, if things went their way, they probably would have ascended already and gone to the other side, potentially, I guess. Yeah. I'd say you're on the money there. <clears throat> that's, um, well, that's like, I don't know if you know, but that's like what I do is I teach a class on ancestral healing and remediation and connecting with spirits of place and things like that. I did not know that. No. <clears throat> um, so I'm like, I today while watching this has been the first time I've seen it since I've been like actively practicing as of maybe five years ago. Like I've always oh, okay. been, always been something of a mystic, but a lot of drug addiction and things like that. Like I mentioned earlier, life's been a rough ride for me, but like five years ago or so things, <clears throat> four years ago, four and a half, something like that, things started getting a lot better. And I started practicing a lot and regularly. And at this point, um, I feel most comfortable working with the dead. Um, <clears throat> and you're on the money there. Like in my experience, which is all I can speak from, um, my experience and what others say, right? But um, that is absolutely the case. Like my, so I don't, I don't catch much symbolism. It's just not how my mind works. Uh, if I, if I do, it's more emblematic. It's more like this thing inherently means this in the world. And it would mean this even if you went to uh, some culture that's on a remote island, like they would still know that this stands for this. Because I don't think that's symbolism. I think that symbolism is culturally referenced specifically. Um, and that's how we like have this common knowledge of what it stands for. Even if that culture is a subculture or a hidden culture, um, like what you're saying, like that's all symbolism because it's attached to cultures that that, that stuff arose from. However, um, if you go to somewhere where they don't speak English and somehow could communicate with them and they'd never talked to uh, anyone, any Westerner before, anyone from our culture, and they would still know that snake meant danger and wisdom, right? Yeah. Like there's something about like snake just means danger and wisdom, period. Um, that's on a biological and a spiritual level. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So, <clears throat> so I noticed emblematic things, but not so much symbolic. And so in this, I, I, I just saw it almost purely metaphysically today. Um, from my experience with working with the dead and things. And I, I saw it not as uh, not as much as, it wasn't like I even thought of it, so I didn't consider it or anything, but I saw it as the lady in the room in 237 was probably the first. She was probably someone who was so fucked up when she got to that hotel mm. um, that whatever happened to her, her spirit inhabited the hotel and at that point 
the hotel is inspirited with her. But then when that gets into the minds of someone else who's just, who's troubled, who's staying there, and what, what better place could there possibly be for a malicious ghost than a fucking hotel? People go to hotels to do shit they don't want to do at home. Mm. People who are fucked up and people who have a lot of money are almost always fucked up. So the psychological uh, banquet that would be available, the energetic feast of dysfunction that would be available to the spirit is endless. Um, and I think that once the next few people got killed or taken, however they did, they become subsumed into it. Almost like we were talking about with David Lynch with in, in the, um, the Black Lodge. Um, like there's this capture that happens where they, they then become part of the living being that is the hotel that is inspirited and truly like haunted and enlivened by this first person who was just truly awful. But then as people die there, they all kind of get subsumed into the spirit of the place itself. And that is one spirit, even though it originated from like maybe one person that had some fucked up shit, the way that it grew turned it into this thing. And the thing that they were all thirsty for, that everyone wanted, they needed that moment of murder. The moment of the actual sacrifice was what they all craved. So that's why red rum keeps coming up. Mm. That's why that's why the elevator doors. So I love what you were saying with the symbolism, <clears throat> because or with the door stuff, because I do I I saw that too, but for me it was like all of that is building up to the elevator, the symbolism of the elevator doors, the floodgates becoming open, and the blood flowing. And to me, that is the actual moment of murder. And every time they saw it, that's like the spirits getting fucking ecstatic and just salivating over the idea of violence. Like anytime it gets closer to the surface, they see the elevator open and the blood. And it's just this release that they're so fucking hungry for um, that they can't help but like express what they want to happen. It's like sending it out every time they want it, every time they can taste it, it's close. Um, and that's why, like, she finally sees it, too, and it's just it's horrifying, like... Um, <clears throat> so to me, it was like, the whole time, what they're trying to do is get him to open the door. Open the fucking door. Let that blood out. Let the fucking blood flow. Um, and uh, I think it's really interesting that, that he was sort of chosen to, to be there, um, because he clearly matched... Like, like is attracted to like in magic, always. That's why sympathetic magic works. But, so, he was drawn to that place because he fucking belonged there. Because he was this twisted man who was 100% selfish and was pretending as hard as he could to not be a sociopath. Like, for whatever reasons. Um, that place like wanted him. I feel like it was like a prize possession for them to actually acquire him. Um, like just my, my imagining of these ghosts, it's like this, yes, if we can just get him, because he's, he's just so right for this. He's so shitty on the inside and he's so fucked up that he'll just fit right in. <laughs> right. Um, 
No, I think you're so, right, man. Yeah, that's just like from a purely necromancy perspective. I saw like a spirit of place being the hotel getting kind of infected by the spirit of a unrestful ghost of a human who was probably possessed by something. And then. Well, well don't forget that it's built on an Indian barrel mount. Oh, right. I forgot all about that. Yeah, and and it's funny because, right, the only place in the hotel that has the Native American symbolism is that room that Jack writes in that slowly makes him insane. Oh, okay. I didn't catch that <laughs> shit at all. I didn't catch it at all. I, I think anytime I hear Native burial ground it just yeah, no, goes so, one in ear out the other <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's such a it's such a cliche but i'm but did this movie invent that cliche well that cliche exists because that's real <laughs> <laughs> like i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that there's some shit that is yeah my, my grandpa built a lot of houses when he was younger and i think he might have some things that are still mad at him <laughs> There's some shit that he dug up and like just ignored because yeah. you know in the 50s and 60s like oh that's just some silly brown people that were here before um yeah well i think this speaks to the july 4th ball right july 4th uh, 1776 uh, way to bring it back <laughs> yeah the you know this is when the declaration of independence was signed so it's just you know uh, the takeover of the country and speaking to the genocide and all the different things the heinous crimes that happened here uh to the indigenous people and so i think that there's something definitely going on there and if you notice too jack's boss he's very presidential looking you know, mm. there's a little flag on his desk and he looks like a politician or something, mm. you know. And so um, I think it's like it's speaking to all of this. There's definitely this theme of America, its past and then America, its present and all these different types of things, you know. So uh, the Overlook Hotel in a lot of ways, many, many ways, it's a microcosm of so many different things. So, yeah, but very interesting stuff. Um Man, I would love to know more about your work with all of that. Maybe at some other point. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, well the, the course actually starts up tomorrow. The next round of it. So. <laughs> nice, um, nice. If you want to take the course, like <laughs> Kurt's done it. Kurt's actually Sweet. gonna. He'll be there through the whole thing. He just hangs out there, which is great. I wish I could pay right you on. too. But I'm actually a ghost. Just <laughs> that makes sense. He's, Are those little a... ghosts next to you? By the way, there you go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's I'm in a, a bathroom with ghosts. That's right, a right, right, right. Ghost cowers shower curtain. Yeah, this is so Kurt's entire set was actually built. Um they didn't go on location <laughs> to the bathroom. This it looks was, very this realistic. Was, yeah. This was built by Kubrick in the eighties for just this podcast. That's how far. <laughs> I love it. Hell yeah. Um, so I was going to just mention regarding the unsettled spirits thing. Um, I'm just reminded of the weighing of the souls ritual, you know, from ancient Egypt. And I think it's mm. just a really nice metaphor to kind of explain this whole thing. But basically the idea was that your heart weighing of the hearts, weighing of the souls ritual. Um, I think it's called psychostasis too, is the, the process of doing this. And so, um, your heart upon death symbolically was weighed against the feather of ma'at which is known as the feather of truth 
and she's very much associated with Libra. And so Lib with Libra, we're dealing with the scales, right? And so your heart was weighed against this feather. And if it was heavier than a feather, then you would be eaten by a monster, essentially. Your heart would be eaten by a monster, this underworld sort of deity figure. And if it was lighter than the feather, then you had a more favorable transition to the other side. You know, so it's when you're courted and you're weighed down and maybe, you know, you didn't live the most authentic path or something like that, you know, something really, um, I don't know, is attached to you or whatever. How would you say it? Why, why, why do people um, stick around here versus going to the other side? Well, there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> like what, what you just said about the, the weighing of the heart, um, I can... I remember in um, Magical Egypt, there's the series Magical Egypt. If you have not seen it, see it. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's basically everything archaeologists pretend isn't real about Egypt, um, and uh, it's it's incredibly credible too, which is incredibly credible. That's yeah. Anyway, so uh, they they kind of articulate that with some some nuance that I'd never heard before in that series where it's. Uh, the only way that your heart will fail that test is if you failed to do the inner work that you came to do in your incarnation. So like exactly what you just said, if, if you didn't follow your path, that's it. Like <laughs> that, but I don't think that that's definitely not the only reason that there are ghosts. Um, I think if, if people die suddenly, very quickly, um, they very often won't realize that they've died and that has to be corrected. Um, if people don't get proper proper burial or proper funeral rites, um, mm. if people don't mourn them in some cases, uh, and then I think there are times where everything can be done right and it still kind of goes awry. But then I think there are times where someone, someone who has their shit together internally could maybe die a less than, than happy way and still be okay. Like, mm -hmm. I think they're just infinitely variable um, and infinite complexity. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of have to approach everything case by case and figure out what kind of parameters to kind of diagnose by and, and how deep to diagnose. It's like, how much do you actually have to know about the presence to know whether or not it's, it's welcome to stay or it needs some help? Um, mm -hmm. And if it doesn't need help, then it needs to be kicked the fuck out, right? But, but nine times out of 10, when people think they have some kind of demon or ghost, it's like, it's a human soul who's confused and actually needs help. Um, and it's a, I think it's a real problem for like people starting out in occultism and magic that they want to banish anything that, that shows up. But um, a lot of the time, you really just need to like say a prayer for it. And then later, you might have that human soul as an ally coming back to help you like that's the thing that happens because you move them on because you help them oh so, right right yeah so very interesting yeah no i just feel like we're um you know horror movies are interesting um for a lot of different reasons but i think that partly we we just are the culture surrounding death and how we look at death you know in a lot of ways just needs work in my opinion Oh, and yeah. so it's just like, we're not doing it properly. You know, uh, there's a lot of cultures that had like very specific things that they did still, some of them obviously still do that today, you know, uh, but the way we kind of go about it and the way we view it, I think is very off. And it makes me wonder 
how intentional that is, how organic that is, you know, things like that. Um, so th that's something that I'm kind of exploring right now. So the fact that you're like interested in this kind of subject matter, I think is really, really intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and um, I don't know if, if you've listened to the show or not, but like, we don't, we don't actually worry about staying on topic or anything. So um, <clears throat> we, oh, awesome. we can, we can just bullshit. <laughs> that's good. Like if you need to go nice. to the bathroom, it, it doesn't matter. We're just, it's casual. Um, I probably should, probably should tell everyone this beforehand, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I know, I know a lot of podcasts, people come on and they have their, all their presentation and they want to sound prepared and like they know what they're talking about and and we don't and we kind of just want to provide a place where it's comfortable so um awesome yeah well on that note i will go to the bathroom yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the afterlife process that i want to share that i've been looking into lately get your opinion Hell yeah okay. yeah great. wouldn't it be okay. wouldn't it be amazing if you if you left your screen and then you walked into mine <laughs> <laughs> it would be incredible i might stop i might stop podcasting right. i'll be right back <laughs> it's like this is i gotta hang up the hat this is too too much <laughs> it's really funny i gotta stop assuming people listen to the show before they come on because i can yeah. I, I i want i want them to know uh you don't have to you don't have to care well and i i think i think mario he he goes on shows and he really he's He's really good about putting presentations together too because that's like uh, his thing okay um uh so i if we can break him out of that a little bit i think that's kind of fun if we, if we <laughs> get him much more much more uh loose it's funny how how i'm i'm always torn between like i want to get somebody like loosey-goosey and but i also like i don't want to interrupt you if you put together a presentation you know? <laughs> <laughs> well he 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 uh and uh, anybody who doesn't know, he, it's symbolic studies. That's the, it's under, I think, under TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. Symbolic studies is, is Mario's thing at symbolic studies. And he puts together really great little snippets about diving into symbology. So this is, this is what he does. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm really happy that he agreed to come on here. It's uh, but, really cool. But I was just, I was just saying, Rev, like, we're going to completely derail your, your, tendency to like do really good solid complete presentations we're gonna ruin that because <laughs> <laughs> we just bullshit like yeah. we did the first the first five or six episodes were literally just me and kurt talking about whatever we watched that week together so <clears throat> nice um, the idea is kind of like um both i want to like people like you that are really excited and have a lot to say about something really cool and want to like present that this is like the soapbox, right? It's a soapbox for that. But also uh, something where we're not actually like trying to sound cool or smart and can just go off and not worry about any of that stuff. Because I think there's so much social pressure because of the internet that everything's edited before it's presented. And even like our words, our tweets, our videos, everything. And, and nobody sees like the snot hanging out of your nose right anymore um and i just i think that that no matter how awkward a conversation gets we're gonna fucking post it and i'm not gonna edit it and and i want that to be comfortable but like i, I i'm glad that you felt good about going through all of that stuff because it actually blew my fucking mind and i like 
originally had the intention of like loosening things up but as you went on i'm like this is too interesting for me to interrupt him like because I'm, I'm actually really fucking blown away and i want to go watch the movie again like <laughs> nice I nice think, hell yeah yeah it's just That's really red. cool like i never ever would have caught um the star symbolism and stuff but that is like airtight man I and mean, it's it's airtight it's there very cool dude i mean honestly if i did not go down that rabbit hole when I did and watch it when I did a lot of these things would not have come together. So that's why I feel such a connection to this film where a lot of times I'm sure you guys feel this too, but I'm just like, I feel like I was the person to kind of, you know, um, at least hold space for some of this information, mm. you know, and maybe other people have had the exact same <laughs> experience or whatever, but it just all lined up um, that way. But um, what I was going to say about the afterlife stuff because I love this topic. It's super fascinating to me and I have permission to go off the rails now. So uh, I had permission the whole time. I just didn't know it, but <laughs> you know, there's this whole idea of the um, gateway to heaven or stairway to heaven, you know, and I'm starting to realize that this is actually a real thing. And so a lot of groups have basically said that the stairway to heaven exists in the Northern sky. And there's a connection between the northern sky, this stairway to heaven, and the north star, which is the guiding star. So the north star is like the preeminent star in the sky for early seafarers. You know, if you knew where the north star was, you could figure things out, essentially, because it's always in the same place. So for those who don't know, if you look in the night sky, and if you look at the North Star, the North Star is essentially going to stay idle and all of the other stars around it are going to revolve. You know, so if you take a time lapse photo of the northern sky, one star is going to be in the middle of this wheel and then there's going to be a streak of stars going around it, essentially. And so the northern sky has so much going on symbolically it's blown my mind and it's actually something that I'm going to be talking about way more. In fact, I might do a podcast just dedicated to Northern symbolism and polar symbolism because it, to me, it's that significant. And so there are two main constellations that get associated with the North star. And this is Ursa minor and Ursa major. This is the little dipper and the big dipper, the little bear and the great bear. So the Little Dipper, they each have seven stars to them, by the way. And so the Little Dipper has seven stars. It looks like a Little Dipper, um, this little sort of handled thing with a, a vessel at the end of it. And the end of the handle is literally the North Star. And then the Big Dipper is a bit further out. It's, it's much larger. And it also has seven stars. And so these constellations have been called many, many things throughout the ages. So... Sometimes they're referred to as um, wagons or plows. I just mentioned bears. I just mentioned dippers. Um, I know other ones will come to me, but they've been referred to many, many different things. Oh, also the thigh of the bull. So in ancient Egypt, if you see a thigh of the bull reference, sometimes you'll see the bull's thigh with seven stars within it. This is a reference to Ursa Major. And so the Egyptians, my understanding is they basically said that when you die, you go to the other side, your soul travels to the north and is trying to access this cusp 
And so if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum around Earth, there is an opening at the North Pole. This is why we have the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis effect. And so there's this opening or cusp that they refer to as the horn of a great bull. And so this opening has been referred to as many things throughout the ages. But the thing that's really trippy and really fascinating about it that I'm just right now is that a lot of these cultures who have similar sorts of myths um, or stories about the gateway to heaven, the stairway to heaven, a lot of times, and actually Peter Lavenda, you brought him up earlier, he wrote a book about this and he knows a lot about this subject. He's a very interesting guy. So he wrote a book called Stairway to Heaven. And what he did was he broke down the ascension material of various groups around the world. Mm. So like he goes far east and he's talking about the, the Kabbalists too. And he's talking about Western occultists and things like that. And basically a lot of these groups had um, a very similar way of looking at how to get to the other side, kind of on an astral level, on a meditative level. So physically remain here, but go to the other side, um, learn or experience whatever you're going to do. And then uh, returning after that with, you know, this new information in mind. And a lot of these groups had seven phases or seven steps on how to get to the other side. And so based on reading his material and other material based on these subjects, my very strong hunch and inclination is to say that there are seven spheres, seven phases, seven steps that exist between this realm and then the other realm on the other side. And that this is what's encoded in like even the chariot card, which is number seven. And so there's a lot of things get, that kind of get baked into this whole entire thing. But um, that's pretty much kind of like where I'm at right now is acknowledging these seven steps. So this is why there's seven days of the week, seven colors of the rainbow, seven traditional planets. Uh, you know, seven actually plays a very, very big role here. Um, the number that's, seven, oh, go ahead. If the, if the planets, um... <clears throat> Are some sort of regulator. They're regulators. They're they're some kind of controlling mechanism as to the experience of life here, which is based on place mostly, right? It's based on where you are because you are the re relational equivalent of all things that, around you. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, it's all good. You know, but, I think that. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying with all of that. And so relating the planets to this whole entire setup, you know, um, a lot of alchemists were like, we live within a nested sphere system and that there's seven main spheres, you know, one relating to the seven planets, one for each of the planets. Um, there's this uh, thing called the pace of you. This is like Chinese occultism where they looked at the seven stars of Ursa Major and they basically uh, in their meditative practice they assigned each star to a planet. And so they would walk from star to star, from planet to planet, in order to get through to the other side. And the tradition is that a lot of people think that if you're going to ascend um, out of this place, and if you're going to start traveling across the cosmos, or what have you, um, that you start with the moon. And so notice that in 2001, which makes sense too, in a lot of ways, right? They start off with the moon. 
and then they go out and you know to the the vastness of space and whatnot and they end with jupiter which i think is a mistake i think that they kind of like stunted the system uh because originally arthur c clark he said that they go to saturn Saturn, so yeah, I thought so. Saturn to Jupiter, because Saturn would be the true end of the line. Jupiter is almost there, but you're not there all the way. You know, there's one more step that you have to get through. And so notice that in 2001, too, you know, you have these human astronauts. They uh, they go all the way to Jupiter, and then he returns, too, as the moon child or whatever. And so this is like alchemical. So there's a whole process called Azoth alchemy, and they believe in the seven steps, too that you know the alchemical process is seven tiered or seven stationed whatever you want to say um, but the north star in the northern sky has had a long history of being associated with the afterlife and with the underworld and so that's pretty much the main thing that i just wanted to impart on you that's is that uh, there's this thing there some people say that it's the pleiades which is just above taurus which also has seven stars so it's known as the seven sisters so what i found in my research is that there's a lot of people like in the new age community, they make a big deal about the Pleiades, what, which again is just above Taurus, seven stars. Um, and I think that in certain ways, they're actually misinformed. And I think that they might be referring to uh, Ursa Major. Uh -huh. So there's this big, big overlap with Very Ursa well Major be. information and then pleading uh, information, which I think is really interesting. And I would like to unpack all of that at some point for people. There, there could also be a masculine feminine dynamic between that too. Sure. Uh, yeah, that 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 could be another take on that as well. Uh, no, that's that's really. I, actually, there's a part of me that's like, if they did go to Saturn in 2001, would we would it have elevated all of reality? And then maybe that's why they stopped. <laughs> it couldn't. It couldn't go that far. Right. Um, I, I honestly, I think they stunted it for a good reason. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting, too, because the northern sky has had um, the fascinating thing about it is that it in, a, in and of itself has masculine and feminine traits. And so I've talked about the psychopomp earlier, Mercury Hermes, you know, um, he's very much androgynous. So uh, he's associated with Quicksilver. So Quicksilver is both a liquid and a metal. So everything about his essence is very much. Um, these two sides kind of coming together and so he's uh, very much associated with phallic symbolism like the pole or the phallus itself but he's also very fluid and is associated in my opinion with like the serpent and things like that um, which the serpent in and of itself is kind of a mercurial animal you know so it has this phallic nature but it also has this you know wavy curvy feminine sort of thing going on too yeah and i actually so associate the uh I associate serpent with almost exclusively feminine. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could see that. Uh, that makes sense. I'm, I'm starting to see, I think there's actually a Trinity in all animals and all planets and all signs. <laughs> and so I used to think exclusively like the sun was only masculine and the moon was only feminine, but the more I'm doing research, the more I've realized that while well, there's certain cultures who actually look at the sun as being feminine and the moon as being masculine and so when I see all of these different symbols now, I almost just wonder now if there's like this Trinity sort of thing going on where it's like masculine, <clears throat> feminine, 
and then I wouldn't say neutral, but I almost feel like a, it's almost like mother, father, child or something like that. Well, yeah, um, like mas masculine, feminine aren't uh, aren't sexes. They're they're masculine, feminine qualities. <clears throat> so mm -hmm. just as we all have both, so do everything else. And mm -hmm. maybe something reaches out to and and resonates with you in one of its ways more than the other and that's fine and for someone else or another culture even it's different you know like there's plenty of female sun gods but to me the sun feels masculine right right yeah exactly what it was it's funny because um what you're talking about where it's like everything is a trinity is is it's even apparent apparent in what is considered the most like dualistic symbol which is the yin yang right like it's the black and the white with it but the thing is, is that you discount the circle that contains them both, mm -hmm. which is the unity of the two. So I just yeah. think that's really, really interesting that you're like, yes, everything is Trinity. Yeah. And that's cool because like the, the third, the child, right. Or the, the offspring or whatever that's it's pre-sexual, <clears throat> right? Like it, it doesn't need, it doesn't actually, I associate with like, one or the other on its own at that point maybe it's imposed upon it right but it doesn't on its own have that pull necessarily there's like totally. this blank slate thing going on yeah 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 no i totally agree with you um so mercury has this tradition of being associated with the number three so hermes trismegistus the, the thrice great hermes trismegistus and so um when i think of this stairway to heaven and this gateway now, um, what I personally see is that this is the bridge or the pole that Mercury travels around to get from um, realm to realm, essentially, is mm -hmm. that literally this symbolic pole, which has been called the axis mundi or the world axis, sometimes it's been, re been related to a pillar or a post. Um, this is the uh, way, this is the road, this is the path that Mercury travels up and down. And so That's... this is why we call it the post office and postage. You know, it's this post. You know, That's... he's the messenger of the gods. That's so fun. Um, like the whole time you're saying that, all I can see is Gratatosk uh, on Ijasu. That's it. You're exactly right. That's the correspondence. Yeah. Right. The, the squirrel, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're exactly. You, you nailed it. So Yggdrasil, it's also known as a world tree. Thank you. You know, and so it's a world tree and the trunk literally is this Axis Mundi world pillar thing, yeah. you know. So so that's kind of my deal right now. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I've been talking to a lot of people about this uh, as well and just kind of comparing notes and whatever. But the seven <coughs> steps to get from plane to plane seems to make a lot of sense. Well, that sounds OK. So the, the seven steps being the planets, like actually being the planets makes sense to me. If they regulate our lives, this is what I forgot to say earlier. Um, if they regulate the goings on in the physical world, it only adds up that to leave the physical world, you have to go back through them. Like exactly. And in like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it's the protocols for how to deal with guardians at each step of the way. Like the Egyptian Book of the Dead is just literally this is what you do when you die. You're going to see this. You have to say this or they don't let you through. Like you have to do this or, or you don't get through. It's a bunch of a series of gateways. I don't remember how many, but it's probably fucking seven, right? 
Yeah, <laughs> I bet you it is seven. I, I mean, uh, that would and, be my guess. Yeah. And it also sounds very arconic. Exactly. Um, very, very Gnostic. Very like, right. you want to fucking leave here? You have to beat all the archons. Exactly. You got yeah. it, man. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So I just recently reread that the archonic sort of guardian sort of thing with the the planets and everything else and the demiurge Hy being the, the head hypo hypostasis of the archons or... uh i didn't read that um okay. yeah because i was looking into the demiurge because he's you know traditionally known as being a lion-headed serpent and we're in leo and that's very much in line with leo symbolism you know so i was looking into it and i was reminded of the archons and there being seven planetary archons and i had the exact same thought that you just put out there i'm like oh well isn't that interesting with all this other yeah. stuff that i'm kind of digging into right now yeah i've always kind of wondered like um why isn't agathos daemon just the demiurge like what d differentiating factor is there they're both lion snakes like what? <laughs> I don't think there is. I think it's just that you're getting you're getting the good graces the, of it. The ben the benefic side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't. I feel weird about that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know too much about that. Oh, uh, Ag Agatha's Damon. I'm looking it up Damon? right now. Yeah. Um, it's a very famous spell in the. Greek magical papyri and it is this it's often associated with this like serpent spirit of a house or the household and it's a protective spirit that would um that I think in like ancient Greece and Alexandria they would summon but it also it also has this quality of being um containing and being above everything which is why mm. there, there's there's like maybe it's the same spirit Right. Yeah, um, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Just based off of very quickly what you guys have brought up and what I'm looking into right now. Um, and that's the thing with mythology, man. I mean, we're talking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just yeah. different ways of talking about the same energies, you know, and that's what these movies are doing too. A really good movie is just speaking to a lot of symbolism that has already, there's nothing new under the sun, you know? So it's just almost like a repackaging, you know, of a uh, pantheon, I think in a lot of ways for people that they can understand. It's for, you know, newer modern sensibilities or what have you. I think things hit that way because we were orphaned from a magical society. We were born into a materialist world and all of these things hit different because they're all coming from the outside of our own actual culture. And, and so they, they can appear and, and it has that initial impression of being, this is the same as this over here. Mm -hmm. But like, really these things are hundreds of years apart and thousands of miles. And the ideas and the societal structures were completely different. And yet these, these ideas still emerge, but in and of themselves, I think there's some kind of, so like a, a, um, a manifestation model, like a platonic manifestation model, but think that, but different, right? So, cause in a platonic model, the physical world is far from the spirit. Like the physical reality is as far as you can get from what's holy. And I think that's trash. Like 
I'm an animist and I think that the physical world is spirit and is holy and is just an expression of spirit. So if you, how do I put this? If you think of there being one mercurial spirit, that is mercury. But then we have humans here interacting with how that spirit lands when it's projecting to earth or how it's interacting and how it's flowing into everything going on here. And so then when it becomes isolated, identified, personified in one place and in one time, it is much like Kurt was saying with how you're forced when part of an image is cut off, you're forced to feed part of yourself into it and, and have it become something that's both it and you. Um, like one expression of a mercurial god in one culture is feeding this, it's being fed through the same tributary or river as that original, but it is different. Like it, it is now a different being that is something like a grandchild of the original or a, um, a descendant of the original where its DNA has mixed with the DNA of the, the quote unquote DNA of the people who lived in the place, who interacted with the specific plants that they ate and the livestock they had and the, the shape of the, the spirits of the, the land and the place itself. All that creates how they understand that force and how they personify and attach um, attributes and a, a form to it. And at that point, like, it's, it's almost like you can't say that it's the same as one somewhere else, but they are like cousins is the best way that I can think of to describe it. Because um, they are flowing from the same source and and they essentially are animated. They have like the same intelligence or the same spirit that are that is filling them up and creating them. But by the point in the timeline where they're being interacted with, they're like, no, I'm not that anymore. Like I'm I'm something else. <laughs> I'm still that too, but I'm I'm something different now. If that, right, right. I hope right. that makes yeah. sense. Well put. No, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Um I was about to make I was about to make a, a um, do it which is which is like so uh, uh chipotle <laughs> still makes burritos but you can get a california burrito it's still a burrito but the fucking california san francisco burrito is a whole different level but they're still burritos and so <laughs> and so the the arconic version of this that's seamless getting between you and the restaurant and saying no, 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 no. We're the we're what delivers you food. Go to us <laughs> versus versus actually connecting with the rest of getting your burritos directly. Really dumb, but I feel like <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely worth sharing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my uh, what I wanted to bring up in regards to that um, is kind of bringing it back around to actually Peter Lavenda and some of what I'm talking about with this stairway to heaven. And so this is the book that I was referring to. So this is stairway to heaven by Peter Lavenda. 
And the little tagline is Chinese alchemists, Jewish Kabbalists, and the art of spiritual transformation. So it's all about Ursa Major, the North Star, the number seven, all the things that I was talking about. And he also wrote a book where he touched upon this very slightly called The Dark Lord. And so this is all about H.P. Lovecraft, essentially. So the tagline is H.P. Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant, and the Typhonian tradition in magic. Well, the thing about this guy who wrote the Sinister Forces uh, trilogy is he used to go by a pen name known as Simon. And so he actually wrote this, The Gates of the Necronomicon by Simon. So a lot of people, it's starting to come out that people are realizing that he's the Simon who wrote the Necronomicon books. And as a symbologist, I felt like I had to give H.P. Lovecraft and the Necronomicon kind of its due diligence. So I went down a rabbit hole to try and figure some of this stuff out. Well, notice that the front of this cover is seven stars. It's seven <laughs> stars, the seven stars of Ursa Major. Yeah. And so what he basically says, reading all of this material that he wrote about this, is that H.P. Lovecraft created this pantheon with Cthulhu and everyone else. And he um, basically updated the pantheon. He updated the great pantheon. And so a lot of people think that what he was doing was that he essentially took, you know, these older gods from like Sumerian mythology. And whether he was cognizant or not, he basically kind of took that pantheon and uh, created it for modern sensibilities. And so people started working with it over time and people started realizing that like, whoa, okay, this pantheon that he created is actually very sound. So all of the necessary gods are there. The cousins of these gods are there and they all have a role. And this is actually like a workable system. And so there are actually black magical uh, Lovecraftian groups who literally acknowledge the Northern sky as the preeminent gateway to get out of here, which is why this book is literally called The Gates of the Necronomicon and features Ursa Major. And literally in the back of this book, it has a timetable. You know, it's completely outdated because this book came out a while ago. But he has a timetable on the most opportune time to access this stairway to heaven and to be able to travel, you know, the cosmos and to go to different places and stuff. And the reason why he puts the uh, the Ursa Major constellation like this is because he said that the ancients believed that it's when the great bear was hanging by its tail, meaning that this is when Ursa Major is underneath the North Star, that this was the most opportune time to get out of here and to do whatever you were going to do. And so they looked at Ursa Major and Ursa Minor as an old primitive sky clock, essentially. And these constellations are circumpolar. So um, they don't dip below the horizon, depending on where you're at in the world. And most of the world can see the North Star and Ursa Minor. So therefore, they'll know where Ursa Major is versus the Zodiac. Um, I believe no matter where you're at in the world, you're not going to see the Zodiac. You're only going to see a portion of the Zodiac throughout the year you know, and it's going to revolve around versus these circumpolar constellations, you know, I can see them year round, essentially. And so, um, so yeah, so some people, you know, they're not doing rituals to the Egyptian gods, they're not doing rituals to the Sumerian gods, they're literally doing rituals with the Lovecraftian gods. Meanwhile, the Mayans are uh, watching us and making the like Willy Wonka condescending meme. 
face. <laughs> right, right. Oh, you think you understand time. That's cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyways, so that, that's kind of how I interpreted what you're saying about like the cousins of these gods and how they're all related. And it's just kind of- No, that's really cool. Thing, you know? Um, man, that, that last part has like Jim Jones written all over it. <laughs> just like, this is the opportune time. We must ascend. <laughs> yeah, do you, think, you know, go ahead. Do you, do you think the hanging bear is like, because it's no longer, since it's hanging down, it's no longer guarding the gate or something? Do you think, suppose that's the thinking? That's okay. a really good question. Yeah, I'm well, not sure what he actually writes in the book, but that's a, a very interesting thought. I think there's something interesting going on here too uh, in my weird ass mind with Russia being the bear and Tartaria being the world civilization that supposedly existed a few hundred years ago and was erased with a great reset during the world's fairs. Um, right. or, there were like several of them supposedly. Um, the evidence for which some of some of it is is so so and some of it is really fucking convincing but a lot of the evidence for it being convincing is that you literally have the world economic forum putting us in a great reset right now that is doing all of the things that these conspiracy theorists say happened already and happened periodically where they sort of erase history and um uh confiscate technology and then slowly re-release it um <clears throat> and in ways that they can control or whatever but tartaria was supposedly based in the northern parts of russia like that was its capital and it was a world civilization that had renewable energy and um there are textual evidences for tartaria existing like solid um like uh original documents that are pretty much foolproof as far as any kind of fraud or anything like that like there's a lot of evidence that tartaria existed and if russia is the bear there's a there's also something i heard recently there is a an organization that's named something that's pretty common out of russia um something like the people's something for blah 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 and they actually have in there i just found this out recently and i wish i could remember the details on hand but um they have in their charter that they are actually the keepers of the tart like the manifesto of tartaria and that they will rise again like that they're keeping these tenets and documents like safe while like evil has taken over um so i just think it's interesting that the idea of this something hanging like the bear hanging and like we are, we would actually be in a period right now where that world civilization is hanging by the like metaphorically speaking it's inert it's been rendered inert and we are in like this offshoot where empire has taken over like according to this conspiracy mythology it just struck a chord with me because it's like the star thing actually works with tartaria being subverted right yeah no dude that that is a fascinating rabbit hole and uh i kind of go in and out of looking into tartarian stuff 
And so, um, but the free energy thing, you know, there, there's so that's what I'm saying. When I said earlier, like what's history, what's mythology, it's like, this changes the game, you know? Um, and I know that there's a lot of Russian people who have a different, uh, timeline of things as well. Yeah. Um, and which I think <laughs> is really intriguing, but yeah, there, there's lots of evidence, uh, for this. And so it really does seem to me personally, it's just like, if you look at the world and all the ruins everywhere and all that kind of stuff, it's, I think there's just been multiple resets and I just think that it happens, you know? So we're, we're living in a playground that has been demolished multiple times sort of thing. And so there's these remnants all over the place. And so for us to try and put it all together, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a tall order. Um, but it does make sense that there was technology that far surpasses what we have now, you know, that was readily available and that they were tapped into the ether and they knew how to make certain kinds of buildings to do certain sorts of things, you know, the uh, Antiquitech sort of thing, you know, they had that on lockdown. There's a lot of things that you can't even find. Um, you can't even find uh, businesses or what am I looking for? Contractors to make certain th to make certain types of buildings that were very common, however many years ago, you know? Um, and so One a lot of the older buildings are inherited. You know, we modern man, you know, post reset did not create some of these buildings. They were inherited from an earlier civilization, it seems like. One, one of the things that gets me the most about, and if, if anyone's interested in this topic, um, I believe it's stolenhistory.org. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they have free documentaries on this. And um, the first one is kind of just an announcement of what the second two are. So it's fine to skip um, just two and three, but they're, they're really good. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, and explaining that and setting up my point, I forgot what I was going to fucking say again. But well, I'll, I'll just to just to keep it weird, I'll throw in the there was re, there's a paper that recently came out by what's his name, uh, famous like UFO researcher. But he's talking about the ultra terrestrial hypothesis, which is that that's this idea that that actually the these kind of crazy UFOs that we see are actually by some locals right Val that's one aspect of was, was Alan it? greenfield and how uh, put off that's who that's how put it out how put off um and so that that kind of ties into like what you're talking about that yes we the there was like some really high technology that then has collapsed but possibly like maybe the ufos are a like they're this, they're this civilization that's held it together, but they just sort of occasionally pop up and getting more frequent as of right now. I don't know if any of you guys follow it, but it's definitely, it's on the rise. <laughs> people, people encountering things. Oh, um, I believe it. Yeah. yeah I, um, maybe 12 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. I actually bought a pair of military grade night vision goggles to look at the night sky and uh, I heard about this in some interview, probably on like coast to coast or YouTube somewhere or whatever, but this guy was in the military. He had access to night vision goggles. He, for whatever reason, he looked at the night sky with his goggles while he was, you know, um, on duty and he saw all sorts of things in the sky. And I was like, that is brilliant. I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. So I bought a pair. The first night I tried them, I saw a triangular craft. A lot of times people call them the TR3Vs and it blew my mind. And so for a few years, I was really into um, basically sky watching 
with the night vision and I saw so much stuff. What <clears> was it? I don't know. I had a couple of interesting encounters with these things that like kind of came down and, you know, um, it's a whole thing, but um, I saw multiple things throughout the years and I just very recently sold them because I did not, I didn't really use them lately. Because once you see so many of these sightings and encounters, you just know now. It's like there's stuff going on up there that you have no clue about, you know. So my main question was always like, where are they coming from? Where are they going? What are they transporting? And some of these things seemed like they were actually kind of like alive, almost like big entities or something or big spirits yeah. or whatever you want to say other things kind of like looked like actual physical crafts and whatnot. But, you know, most people still don't realize how much activity there is in the night sky. If you actually just spend the time and if you happen to have goggles like this, I mean, it, it'll blow your mind because there's just so much going on up there. So, you know, the idea of some of these things being local, I mean, that was one of the first thoughts I came to as well, because there's just so much activity. Well, that's as, as my, practice has progressed over the last few years and um and my ability to perceive spirits have has grown there are times where i look up at the night sky now and i will see things that they're not they don't have a physical presence but there's like a, a almost like a transparency quality um to seeing spirits <clears throat> like it's there and you can focus on the space that it exists in because you can see something there. It's, it's almost like seeing how predator looks when predator is camouflaged. There's um, you know, but it's, it's not necessarily an ocular thing, but it, it is visual. Um, and exactly. I see, I see like, what, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I see what would look like almost like water blood, water bugs that skip across. And, and I know that you have, you know, you have bugs in your eye, you have like little bacteria and things in your eyes, and you can see those sometimes too, but it's a different thing. Like they're, they're not, there's no depth of field with the ones that are on your actual eyeball. Like you can't, <clears throat> you can't see them out of the corner of your eye and then turn your head and look at, directly at them and have them be in the center of your vision then, right? Mm -hmm. Like, cause they're actually on the surface. So there's, there's a way to tell, and <clears throat> I swear, like lately it's been, it's been ridiculous. Like the things that I've seen lately. And I, and I know that some of it is your eyes playing tricks on you, but some of it, you can actually feel the connection and be like, that's, um, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's a thing. And it's a thing like the way that you can feel when another humans in the room, mm. like you can connect to it and you're like, that's a being. I don't, I don't have any better explanation, but the one thing I know for sure is it's not a spaceship, right? And I, and I, I do you. believe, yeah. I do believe that there are crafts floating around that our government probably has, that, that maybe not even our government, right? Like, cause that sounds silly. It's the black projects that have been siphoning hundreds of trillions of dollars since this fucking seventies, completely unaccounted for. It's them, right? If anything, but but those I think are there too. And I've seen those with my own eyes. Like when I, I was my ninth birthday and I had five of my friends staying over the night and we had a Nerf war and I got a bunch of Nerf guns for my birthday and it was fucking great. And then three in the morning, we decided to sneak out of my window and two of my friends got out before me. And then I put my leg out 
and I hopped out and I like lift my head up and my friends are both standing in front of me with their heads straight up at the sky and their jaws open. And like, I'm like, what are they looking at? And I look up and it's just like, there's the tree line and then there's the house. So it's just a strip of sky. But across that is just the thin, just like the, the slight curve of the edge of something massive. And it has like white periodic lights on it. And it is physical and it is almost definitely metal. And it's moving pretty slow considering it's maybe the same height as the trees again above their tops like it's not that fucking eye up like you could one shot that kind of height and moving very just slow and completely silent and we just stood there staring at it for about 30 seconds until it was gone and then we went back in the fucking window and we didn't sneak out of the house at all that night but like that wasn't that wasn't the same thing and i know that wasn't the same thing as the stuff that i see in the sky at night when I'm just, when it's transparent, when I'm just looking. Um, so when you're saying like, you wouldn't believe the amount of activity up there, it's like, I, I probably would, but it would probably still be like three times more than I'm even imagining now, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, all of the things that you're mentioning, I've had similar sorts of experiences, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, as I said earlier, I can't remember about what, but there's a spectrum of things up there. And I think you kind of articulated that very well. It's like, there's things that are kind of bug-like, I think, that are kind of like lower form sort of things. I think there's probably things that are like very ascended and intelligent and whatever up there. There's things that are physical, there's things that are non-physical. And so I think it really is, it's just like this whole sort of system of uh, a phenomenon, whatever it is. So yeah, good stuff. <laughs> did you ever uh, with, did you ever notice any sort of like weird seasonality with the, the with the night vision stuff? Like, that's a good question. Um, you know, where I was living at when I had the the goggles um, for most of it, I was in Portland, Oregon, and it rains quite a bit, and so you're not really going to be sky watching too much for probably most of the year because there's always clouds. And so um, so I never got an opportunity to check it out during certain seasons. I mean, I'm sure I could have gotten, I could have gone out of my way to do that. But um, one thing I did notice is that I saw more things um, with higher uh, density um, areas with people. And so if mm. in the city, that's when I tended to see most things. Uh, when we would go out to the woods or the country or whatever, the desert, I didn't see anything. But uh, whenever I was around a city or the suburbs or something like that, that's when I would see the wildest stuff and stuff that's uh. completely unexplainable, you know, um, multiple lights kind of cruising at the same speed. And you could tell it's almost kind of like there's some sort of pack or whatever, and then they would take off. Um, it was really interesting because once I started doing this, I would hang out with, I would invite people to go to the park or wherever, an overlook sort of thing and look. And so there was only one pair of goggles. And so only one person can look at a time. So I spent a lot of time sky watching just with my naked eye, you know, mm -hmm. because someone else would be watching. And I was surprised at how many things I saw with my naked eye too. So it yeah. was almost just like, just looking in general, I saw a lot of things, but then with the night vision, things really kind of came, you know, and popped out at me. Um, so well, even on trips, 
sorry, just real quick. You, you mentioned the predator thing. I saw something like that in, in uh, New York and uh, it just blew my mind. We were on a bus and we were just, I showed my girlfriend like, what the hell is that? And it was completely anomalous. There was, I've never seen anything like that before in my entire life. And it did give off an intelligent presence that that was the only time i mean maybe there's a couple of other small times but that was the one time where i was like this thing whatever it is it's super intelligent you you can tell you know and it didn't make any sense at all and so my brain was like scrambling to try and figure out what it was and then before i could actually figure it out you know we had driven off and we couldn't see it anymore essentially but it was really really close too it was very bizarre was this in new york city or new york state it was in New York City. We were uh, wow. we rode a bus from Philly to New York, and just as we were entering the city, you know, I don't know what part of where we were at, literally, you know, um, but just as we were entering the city, that's when I saw it. And then wow. uh, we we had a we looked at it for maybe like thirty seconds or something. It was a long time, you know, for a sighting. Where was it? Where? Yeah, like was it in the sky or was it? Oh yeah. It was just in the sky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there was just some buildings, apartment buildings or whatever. And then just above it, it was just floating and it almost seemed like, uh, almost like it was like turning into itself or something. It was really bizarre, but it was just like the same predator effect where it kind of gives you like this shimmer sort of thing, but it's translucent, but it's almost like a cloaking sort of thing as well. You know? So have you seen, um, missing 411? Uh, I saw one of them. Yeah. I saw one of them as well. And it was the one where it's more about the people that go with missing when they're like off by themselves in more remote places. Yeah. And there's one about a lady in Ohio who was out in her deer blind and sees literally the fucking predator thing in a tree. I remember and, that. Yep. That's yeah, the one I and saw. Then, and she immediately forgets and then sees it again and is like, how did I forget that that was there? And then like forgets again when she gets in the house to tell her husband until later, like there's this weird amnesia effect that some of these invisible things create, which is really well, also fucking creepy. There's a, there's a weird thing with that too, where she actually does take a picture of it. Yeah. The yeah. picture is this very specifically oddly cropped, distorted, blurry image. It's the wrong number of pixels for pixels. the camera. Yeah, the pixel yeah. Oh, yeah, right. camera has exactly. no capacity to make an image that size, and yet it does. <laughs> right, it's impossible to do. What, and it, I, it's and then you, you kind of you got to wonder: is it is that the point? Yeah. Is is this are spirits just trying to get this fucking lady to admit that spirits are real? <laughs> like, is it just this is impossible, and now you have to admit to yourself that the world you believe in is a lie? Hmm. Because I think that that. Jeffrey Kripal's on to some good shit with the the whole UFO stuff on that. Like these phenomenon and well, not just Kripal, but the fucking what's his face? Jacques Vallée before um, and still, but like that these, these phenomenon are, are there's a vast array of them, like such a vast array that it can't all be one thing, but at the core, they aren't, you know, they definitely aren't purely physical. Um, but God, it's just so fucking weird. Like, like God, in Supernatural, I mean, um, what's his name? The other guy that did the book with him. Whitley Stryber. Uh, yeah, Stryber. Um, <clears throat> Stryber. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, he was he was getting like abused and raped by his abductees until he stopped being afraid of it and he leaned into the experience and he actually sought contact. And like that's then it became totally benefic and changed his life for the better. And he only had good things to say about his Kali like Shakti seeming alien who was some kind of dark mother goddess. Um like that's that's kind of what I think might be at the core of all of this stuff is just people being called to be initiated and resisting. Right. Right. Yeah, I could see that. I could see the case for hidden land as well, much older land, you know, things mm. underground. Um yeah. things like that. I'm I just kind of like what someone was saying earlier. That I think a lot of this stuff has actually it's closer to home than not, you know, mm. uh versus it being from like across the universe or whatever. Uh um, oh, I, I like that interpretation a lot because there's there are some weird ass old creatures that are still here. <laughs> they just don't like to come out much. Yeah, 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 exactly. For sure. You know, all, all of you got you, you guys talking about like the scene, all the stuff in the sky reminds me of the wild hunt and that, which also has like an abduction quality to it too, if I'm not mistaken, like people yeah. getting pulled into it and um, just this like gathering of various different <laughs> entities and spirits in the sky. That's a really good, that's a really cool thought. Yeah, because yeah. I sometimes you would get like you would get taken on the wild hunt if you were chosen and you yeah. would be forced to like end other people's lives in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's an amazing subject. I I go in and out of thinking about this stuff, but it's definitely you guys are hitting on some of my like first loves. So paranormal <laughs> stuff. UFO stuff, you know, eventually I found occultism and film and whatever, but you know, those were some of the topics that really got me going early on is just trying to figure all of that stuff out. And I have well, more questions than answers now. Well, <laughs> so. we all do. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's, that's a sign of like how hard you're trying, like your list of questions. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. The, My questions the, are better, you know, yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been an incredible episode and we've been going for like almost three hours. So I feel like it's probably about time to call it, but. Right on. Yeah. This was really fun. This was fucking great. I excellent presentation. I highly encourage everyone to go check out Mario's videos. Um, I know I'm definitely going to after this and um, everybody check yeah, out, should... check, check out stolen history and then write us hate mail as to why it's stupid. Cause I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear people debunk it. <laughs> yeah, Mario, why don't you why don't you plug your stuff? Nice. Yeah, yeah plug I can it. do. For sure. Cool. So um as you guys were saying, my project is called Symbolic Studies. You can go to symbolicstudies.com and you can pretty much find all of my social media accounts there. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and I'm now on Rockfin. I'm on YouTube, things like that. Um and I also do tarot readings, I do symbolic consultations which it's really been cool to see what people are asking me uh, for feedback on. So I've done like light dream analysis for people. People have shared their artwork with me and have asked me to like kind of break it down for them. Like what I'm seeing symbolically, is there anything that, you know, I can tell them that might kind of uh, make it stronger that way. 
And so it's just really fascinating what people are coming at me uh, with, you know, short stories and poems like that. And they want to know how they can inject more of like whatever quality into it. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of short videos. And so I follow the sign during the sign itself. And so that's been a really good practice for me um, just to really get into each sign. So right now I'm putting stuff out um, regarding Leo and then soon enough it'll be Virgo, et cetera. Um, but if you go to symbolicstudies.com, you'll see all my stuff. Awesome. And thanks for awesome. having me. This was a good time. You guys are very, very interesting. And uh, I don't know, I, I've been taking notes down too. So there's a few things I want to look into uh, after we're, we're all done here, but this was, this was really fun. Yeah, man. Like, um, let's keep in touch. We, you know, Kurt and I are both in this little Discord uh, group where I run the course, and it's also like a little community. So, you know, you can pop in there too. And anybody who's listening who's interested in my course, just shoot me an email at reverendjanglebones.com. By the time this comes out, the course will have already started, but I'll keep, um, I'll keep uh, signups open for like another week or something. So, just shoot me an email if you're interested, and I'll send you information. And everybody, go check out Maria's stuff and. This has been awesome. I I feel like we we could never do the shining justice, like even if we talked about it for a, a year. But um, but I I really appreciate getting this take on it because I think it's a movie that's been talked to death, and this was fresh, and I really appreciate that. Nice. Yeah. No, I totally agree. There's a lot going on there. So there's many more threads to pull at with the shining, and uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks, Kurt to uh for being a patreon supporter and for kind of initiating all of this this is really cool hell yeah of course yeah everybody should join that too obviously <laughs> nice nice <laughs> all right we'll see you guys next week all right take and care and we're stopped so if you want to sweet <laughs> well i enjoyed myself okay <laughs> Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy you decided to come on. I, it's funny because um, uh, you're one of two people I emailed and both were people like, I don't, this feels like this is asking a lot for some reason. Oh, oh no, I, I, I didn't think so. I mean, I'm in the mode right now where I'm just trying to chat with people and just talk about symbolism. And if it's through a movie or through a book or through the tarot or whatever, I'm just happy to do it, you know? I'm really glad that the uh, we got to bring in the Northern symbolism stuff too. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, totally. I know, I can't not bring it up, honestly. <laughs> so if I'm talking to people, it's probably gonna come around because it is just such a big passion of mine. <clears throat> Do you think you're eventually just going to walk around with a caduceus and like, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it. That was really but... fun for me because I didn't know. Um, like I, I didn't really click for me. What was like, what, what you did. And then you started going into the symbolism and I'm like, Oh, this is fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. I just, that's trusted. awesome. I was just like, Kurt was like, I have a friend. That's like, have... I'm like, yeah, of course. Like I didn't even, like think about it or ask any questions so it was all a surprise but it was great <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah that's really cool um and i really like the selection of movies you guys have watched too so i didn't know if the shining was going to go over very well because it's a pretty popular movie and you guys were getting into like herzog and i know i mentioned to kurt too i just watched the devils like a few weeks ago and you, you guys did that not too long ago i think and so, so anyways good. oh my god it was 
awesome. And so I considered doing another film that maybe is more fresh to me that I wanted to, to talk about, but I couldn't think of anything else off no, the top of my head. So no, dude, like, that's the point of it. We're not trying to do like, it, it might look that way by the selection so far, but we're not trying to do cool stuff. Nobody's heard of or be obscure. Okay. Or anything. We just want to do like people that are into spirituality reflecting off of culture. Like, cause you, you always nice. get talking about like spirit stuff, but it's not like bouncing off of a piece of culture that makes it more relatable for people that are not spiritual or people that just accidentally find the podcast. And then they're like, wait, why are they talking about weird stuff? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So it's kind of a strategy. Well, nice dude. Um, I'm going to have to check out your guys's discord and uh, maybe look into your class and everything. Cause that's right up my alley. Right on. right on. Yeah, I can send you some info and stuff. I got your email. Cool, cool. Please do. Awesome, dudes. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your day, Kurt. And then it's pretty late for you, right, uh, Rev? Uh, or no? 10, or is it early? Okay. It's like, I got you. Right. right on. Right on. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your night, too. And uh, yeah. we'll be in touch. Okay, guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. All righty. Take care. <laughs> Until next time. Peace. Later. All right. Bye. <laughs> Get a lot written today? Yes. Hey, weather forecast said it's gonna snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? Oh, come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. Just want to finish my work. Okay, I understand. I'll come back later on with a couple of sandwiches for you, and maybe you'll let me read something then. Wendy, <clears throat> let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me, and it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're gonna make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? <laughs>